This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to the 12th episode of Through the Years, the 2002 Year-End Awards Extravaganza. Uh, This is the show where two people who love to look into cameras directly right into the camera, review Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. Camera person number one is me, Trevor Dame, and as always, I'm joined by Matt Feuerstein. Matt, changing up the opening completely threw me off. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know uh, anything about what you're talking about, yeah, but, it's, I, but, it's good, but it's good to talk to you. Uh, a, a story, I, I was wondering if you would get that, that was one of the reasons I did it. Um, I guess a Gabe Sapolsky email leaked today that he sent to Evolve Wrestlers, and one of the things he mentioned was, he was saying, hey, I don't mind it, but this is maybe a habit you want to break. Vince McMahon really doesn't like when you look directly into a camera. Oh, yeah, I so, am. I'm not, I'm not up on all the latest, uh, on all the latest news mm-hmm. related to that stuff. Yeah, but I just thought that was an interesting thing where he's don't right. look. Di- he's right. That is a thing that everyone knows about WWE. <laughs> and it was nice of him to give the advice. But yeah. um, one other nice thing we do, but we do it because we love it, is we tell you about the great shows on the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. There are so many good shows, quite frankly, shows as good, if not better than us, but we didn't tell you that. And. Um, one thing no, I'd be no, remiss- no, we did tell them that, That's so we seem humble. Uh, that was a mistake. I, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, crap. But um, we like to plug every episode, a sp- specific episode of a podcast. This time I'm going to plug Greetings from Allentown, episode 32, which recently came out, which is the Bobby Heenan tribute episode. Obviously, between the last episode and this episode of Through the Years, Bobby Heenan passed away, and that's... Not a good thing. That's very sad. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of us grew up on him. So it's a nice little tribute episode to if you want to relive some memories of Bobby Heenan. And I also have to mention while we're doing the plugs that I was invited to be a guest on a podcast known as Meet the Press Slant, where I rambled on for over an hour about whatever gibberish related to wrestling and wrestling podcasts came into my head. So we've got all that out of the way. So plenty of podcasts to listen to after us. I think uh, I think it's safe to say pretty much everybody who watched Bobby Heenan loved watching Bobby Heenan. So uh, I will uh, also add on my condolences and sadness. But at least uh, in a couple of years, uh, at least in terms of uh, uh, ROH time, however long it takes us to get there, we'll get to talk about some Bobby Heenan stuff too. Yeah, we will. I mean, we'll get to actually... You know, a pretty cool moment in Bobby Heenan history actually happens in Ring of Honor where he manages against Jim Cornette, Jim's, Jim Cornette for the first time, maybe the only time ever. I'm not sure if they did it again. So, yeah, that'll be a, a very cool moment to get to down the road. Absolutely. But we have some cool moments to get through here as we cover. What we're going to do for this episode is we are going to d- review the last Ring of Honor show of 2002, which is the very first final battle. 
And then we'll we have a few awards we're going to give out for Ring wait, of Honor for wait, a few all- honors. Yes, that's right. A few honors to give out for 2002 Ring for, of Honor for all the deep vein thrombozos out there. <laughs> I knew that was coming. And um, we're also I have a little bit of stuff about to about the Wrestling Observer Awards from that year that we can. We're not going to go too in depth, but we can compare and contrast a little bit. But first, we'll start off, as always, with a little bit of the news leading up to Final Battle 2002. The first story would be, it's, it's this is just a fun one in the sense how it kind of lines up with New Japan and Ring of Honor nowadays, where, from the Observer, because of the great reaction Otani and Tanaka got in Philadelphia for their Ring of Honor appearance, and after a TV show airing their U.S. T- tour aired, Zero One is now claiming they want to do a show in May or June in Pennsylvania. Nobody that, this is my favorite line, nobody that they would be working with seems to know anything about this. That story also oh. includes, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a minor point, that, and Dave continues, that story also included the idea that they have started secret negotiations with WWE to get some talent for the show, and that appears to be a total fabrication. Appears to So, I, I was listening to do some research to a 2003 Steve Carino interview, shoot interview, and he was talking even then, so probably at least a few months down the line, about how Zero One was still really looking into doing American shows and that they thought they could do the, a good size audience and... It's funny that Zero One, you know, I mean, not that they're the they're the only promotion that ever wanted to break into the U.S. or run shows there, but kind of ahead of their time when you see the same pattern repeat with New Japan, where they send some talent to Ring of Honor, they get a really good reaction, they, then that leads them to wanting to maybe try their own shows in the U.S. One can be a little more successful at it than the other, but, eh, you know. Yeah, there China. might be there might be some other factors involved in that success as well. But yes, definitely. Uh, yes. And next up, uh, as we end the year, it's, we got a little bit of a news on a running theme for all of 2002, which is the weird Philly indie wrestling wars and the frenemy on again off again frenemy relationship between CCW and Ring of Honor. So we got a couple news little items here. CCW used a gay jobber called Rick Feinberg as a spoof on Ring of Honor promoter Rob Feinstein. Last I'd heard, I thought those two companies are now working together against the mutual enemy of XPW. So, we were talking about this online yesterday, and you made a good point where we don't know if this was just a, uh, a fun joke rib that everyone didn't have a problem with, or if this was CZW trying to twist the knife, I'll note that like you can, if you Google Rick Feinberg, see video clips of him, and it was a very over-the-top gay gimmick that was obviously with that name parroting Rob Feinstein. How did the crowd react? Um, I didn't, honestly, I didn't watch long enough to see how the crowd reacted. I did find, and this shows the depths of research I go for, for I go to for you the listener which is I listened to a podcast part of a podcast interview with Rick Feinberg and in that he claimed he was already working on a very stereotypical gay gimmick and then CZW asked him to do a Rick Feinberg Rob Feinstein spoof and so the two just gelled together yeah because those those cheap gay gimmicks are you know they're never in good taste but the level of comfort I have with them uh, usually extends to how much like anger and vitriol is directed at them by either the announcers like an ROH or the crowd, you know, as opposed to just like laughing 
at it, which is still not good, but you know what I mean. Exactly. But he claimed that he had no personal animosity to Rob and that, in fact, they have a mutual friend and he thought everything was cool between them. But he just said, and, you know, again, you don't know exactly what the intent was. He just said that, hey, CZW wanted to, a character to make fun of Rob Feinstein. So that, that's interesting in the wake of a few months earlier. You know, we had a uh, Rob shaking Zandig's hand, I think, at Glory by Honor. And then we go to actually the night of Final Battle. Dave writes at, uh, a couple weeks earlier, CCW will be running December 28th with their final show at Viking Hall before XPW takes on its exclusive lease with a 1 p.m. start. That means there will be an afternoon show in the building plus an evening show by 3PW. A third show takes place a few blocks away that night from Ring of Honor, which would be Final Battle. CZW and 3PW are working together trying to promote it as a double header, and each will send wrestlers to the other show, making Ring of Honor the odd promotion out. And of course, it didn't turn out the way uh, Dave was told it would, because the week after the show, Dave wrote in The Observer, the billing that there would be a 3PW match on the CZW show, and vice versa, didn't end up happening. From what we've been told... There were discussions about doing this deal, but it was never finalized. Instead, CZW sent Acid and Cashmere to the ROH show. And then for the actual results of those shows, Dave writes, CZW ran its afternoon show at its final event at Viking Hall. We didn't get a crowd, but it wasn't good, partially because it came two weeks after a major show in the building, plus going head-to-head with an Eagles game didn't help either. So this wasn't Cage of Death. Um, I'm not sure. The 3PW show drew around 275 fans for a decent show, which saw Pitbull Gary Wolf win their title over Sabu. So I, I think it's just interesting that a few months earlier we had a uh, um, CZW and Ring of Honor team up and do the kind of semi-official doubleheader against XPW, and Ring of Honor had the afternoon show. And now it's rever- everything's reversed. It's topsy-turvy. Ring of Honor is not part of the doubleheader. CZW and 3PW were talking about running their shows as a doubleheader against Ring of Honor. And for the record, uh, Cage, of Death, uh, Cage of Death 4 was on December 13th, 2002. So, so that, was, would so that be, was yeah, that was the one from two, a couple weeks earlier. Yeah, that would be the major show two weeks earlier. And then, like Dave's writing here, there was talk of 3PW and CZW... Um, sharing talent, and then at the last second it doesn't happen, and they send the Backseat Boys to Ring of Honor again, so I don't know what, you know, what maneuverings, or if it was just harmless, but it's interesting that it's interesting to think of three shows in Philly on the same night. Like, even now, when we consider indie wrestling to be a lot hotter and more vibrant than then, the idea that if you went to Philly that night, you couldn't even watch every show in the city that day, if you wanted to. Yeah, you know, it it is, you know, obviously indie wrestling now is hotter and more vibrant. But in some ways you hear about this era and I don't know, this the era seems more exciting. It seems like it seems like the promotions are just a little more dynamic and there's more there's less predictability. I I don't know. I I it might just be me being old and uh not as into it as I used to be. But there was something about that era of indie wrestling that, you know, even if it wasn't as popular as it is now, some 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 in some ways it felt a little bit cooler still, not as good. The wrestling wasn't as good, obviously up and down. But you know what I mean. 
and I, I feel like there were more there was more open open hostility to from companies to each other. Like they're still backbiting and nowadays and especially like I think a few months ago we had the mini controversy of what's the ethics of wrestlers like canceling indie bookings at the last second to take up PDWG bookings. But I mean, the, the stuff we've read this year in Philly is just way on a different level of, you can tell there's some real rivalries. And even when they're working together and shifting alliances and things like that, I don't think you see that as much in 2017 indie wrestling yeah it was a real promotion war with some shady stuff going on and as, yeah. as you and i both know nothing shady happens in indie wrestling in 2017 no not at all it's 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 clean and super super honest yeah very transparent but we can now go to final battle 2002 get to the meat of it took place on december 28 2002 to what Meltzer describes as a packed house of 500 people at the murphy rec center in philly so that would be almost double what 3pw did you know down the street at viking hall and that would be i believe the largest crowd they've ever done in the murphy rec center that would be on on uh, the level of what they report as doing when they went to Boston, so, so um, that's a uh, it's a good sign considering that people were you know there was like some bad news for the uh, night of the butcher attendance. Yeah, that that show had to be moved to to Philly at the last second, and they were worried about burning out Philly. In fact, they won't come back to Philly after this show for three months. But it's weird because on paper, I think this card looks okay, but it doesn't look great. But maybe the excitement, maybe more people were coming into town because of the, there was a double header, or there was just excitement, or sometimes the time around the holidays is a good time for wrestling. You know, it's three days after Christmas. That, that, you know, and also um, everyone was excited to see what Conan was going to do. <laughs> He's going to bring back true Lucha Libre, Matt. Uh-huh. But we'll get that to that they, in they, a... they didn't even have that in Mexico at the time, and then they, they brought it into Philly. <laughs> They didn't even have it in Mexico. No. Nope. Conan, so, Conan was bringing it back. He'd show, he decided Philadelphia was the place. <laughs> I don't know if this is true. Like, you tell me if this is true or not. Mm. Well, you can't give me a absolute authority on this. But well, don't be so Dave, sure. <laughs> Dave writes, The crowd has changed for Ring of Honor. As a lot of CZW fans came, and the Backseat Boys got the best reaction. And the CZW audience is a lot wilder and more vocal when it comes to things they don't like. Did you really notice that much of a difference or the Backseat Boys getting the best reaction on the show? Well, the latter, definitely not. Um, Yeah. The former, I I would say... You know, there. You know, even gave himself on commentary mentioned like the the crowd was unruly and there was a lot of booing. I didn't totally notice it myself. I actually at one point noted like this does not come through on the DVD. There was booing, but it seemed to be for things that were like they were booing heels for doing heel things. At least that's how it sounded to me. So I, um, you know, it didn't seem like they were like I. I've been at shows and obviously seen plenty of shows on TV. Or video where they where the crowd shit on things that they weren't supposed to shit on, and that was not noticeable here. Of course, they did edit out a notorious segment, um, but I, I, I didn't. What I believe it because it was said by multiple people, but it didn't come through on the DVD. I don't think. Yeah, me neither. And again, I believe it because Gabe, as you said, he mentions it. I think multiple times on commentary, like, "Ooh, this is a unruly crowd." So, but. As you mentioned, I had a little bit later in the run sheet, but I think it, this is the good spot to put it. One of the reasons why he might have been talking about it being an unruly crowd 
is a famous segment that did not make the DVD because for those who have been listening to the show or watching these shows with us, you'll know that Gabe for at least probably three, maybe four Ring of Honor releases, every show in his plugs has been saying at Final Battle, Conan's going to come in and he's gonna, not going to be WCW Conan. He's going to bring real Lucha Libre the way he likes it to Ring of Honor. And he was really hyping this up. And this was the night, and the matches they booked Conan in, this fairly big star, were a two-man gauntlet against Divine Storm. So he would wrestle Chris Divine first, and then Quiet Storm. And once again, I'll let Dave do the talking here. Conan's debut with the promotion was a disaster, said to be the worst thing in the history of the promotion. I'm told this will be the first match in the history of the promotion that will be edited off, edited off the video. I'll pause here and note... Dave had to correct himself a week or two later because the ICP thing was edited off an earlier show. So it sure was. He, he was wrong here. This is the second thing like that to happen. Um, Dave writes, A lot of fans were on Conan's case about missing moves to the point the reaction got brutal within 30 seconds. The deal was he was supposed to be Chris Devine in three minutes, which he did. He was then supposed to lose to Quiet Storm in four minutes. But the crowd was riding him so much, he called for the finish immediately and went down in a minute 34 just to get out of there. Fans also ended up hating just about every angle and just wanted to see wrestling. Now, we cannot tell you what these matches look like, and maybe that's a good thing, because, as mentioned, they were edited off the DVDs. They were later released as part of the Ring of Honor Uncensored DVD, which had... um, the ICP segment, the Teddy Hart famous segment where he went into business for himself. I, I couldn't find this clip anywhere, but it was a famous thing. One thing I'll note from this, or just thing I'll say, is it's if, if what Dave says is the the initial plan is true, I can't see this working out even if it went off swimmingly because Gabe was hyping this for show after show, and... His plan was to book Conan in a two-man gauntlet match where his combined match time would be seven minutes against Divine Storm? Yeah, true Lucha Libre against uh, Divine Storm. Yeah, when I, when I think of Lucha Libre, I don't think of Conan versus Quiet Storm for four minutes. <laughs> but, I, I I mean, according to Dave, that was the that was the plan, so... I believe it, too. Yeah, it was... Uh, that was a dumb thing to hype. Yeah, yeah I just... I don't know how he thought that would react. I mean, we can argue whether or not it's fair for a crowd to completely turn on something after 30 seconds, but I think the idea as laid out was mucho not good. So we start with the show proper now of what we actually did see on the DVD, and that's with uh, CM Punk and Colt Cabana in a car trying to find the Murphy Rex Center. They're being filmed from the back seat by Ace Steel who at one point thinks, says, like, this is going to get us on Jerry Springer. And what he's filming is Colt Cabana and CM Punk mildly bickering, so I think his expectations <laughs> are pretty high. Colt keeps well, you, know, up- you know, Springer wasn't at the peak of his popularity at the time. He was kind of desperate. <laughs> yeah, this was pre-boom Springer level material, maybe. Uh, Colt keeps obnoxiously talking about the moves he's going to hit that night and how he's going to win and how he loves the perks of flying. He's a big fan of airline peanuts, apparently. He actually, like, talks about them. I'm not just, like, making that up. Punk gets mad and he basically repeats his promo for the last show where he talks about, you know, I offered that to forego the plane ticket if I win so we could keep driving together, but since you... 
you know, you, you're not going to do that, you know, screw you and I'm going to win tonight. And then you can go drive yourself back to Chicago at the end. And that, so that's the opening segment, just building up again, this, this, I guess mini feud, it's basically a two show feud. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, I, I liked it. It, uh, it definitely, I, you know, this was, this one more than the last one, I think got over Colt's character as far as just being super annoying, um, which is, was, you know, if that's going to be your character, you might as well get it over. I thought they did a good job. Obviously, there's not much to Punk's character yet. Um, it was nice to see it. Nice to see a steal, though. Yeah, Punk at this point is more of the grumpy straight man for Colt Cabana. Like, he's just the guy who just seethes as Colt's in the passenger seat being annoying. But Which might be true to life. <laughs> it probably is. I mean, they definitely have that kind of uh, grumpy old friends that bicker but are still best friends despite that vibe but um next we get our standard ring of honor techno music video they showing show, all yeah they show every single wrestler's entrance every single yeah. one why and you know that, that's we'll talk about some things maybe over the course of the show that the ring of honor has learned over the year this is something they didn't learn from complete with at the end of the at the end of the sequence i was thinking well, at least it didn't spoil any big moments from tonight. And then right at the end, they showed Jody Fleisch doing a shooting star press to the floor, which is probably one of the most impressive spots of the show. And they show like Loki and Carino having a handshake, which they they kind of tease. It's not a huge thing, but they tease at the end of the show. They have some hesitation before they do it. So again, as usual, there's no reason to spoil things that are going to be seen on a purchase show and no reason to show the entrances when you show entrances to begin with. But... <laughs> Whatever. Um, next, we get a Steve Carino backstage segment where he is with Gary Michael Capetta. Carino's wearing a odd fashion choice of a dress shirt, kind of like purpley dress shirt and tie under a leather jacket with a pair of sunglasses sitting on top of his head. Um, Capetta, meanwhile, looks like he stole the Sunday sweater your grandfather wears when he's told he doesn't have to go out, leave the house today. Um Gary wants to know what this mysterious new group Carino is rumored to be starting. He, he wants to know about it. And he makes the mistake of calling Carino the king of old school, which launches Carino into this big tirade about how that was a nickname given to him to get over, and he doesn't need to get over with these Ring of Honor fans. He says he left ECW left him $32,000 in debt, which is very specific, and that caused him to lose his home and his vehicle, he angrily asks the fans where were they when he when he needed them, which he, he does this a few times, and I think this is kind of weird because like, what did you want the fans to do to, for you, Steve? Like, Indiegogo or Patreon hadn't been started yet. We couldn't just send you money to pay your healthcare bills. I yeah, I know. Where would we have even found the PO box to send it to? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know what we were supposed to do, Steve. I'm I'm retroactively sorry, but he uh, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> Steve talks about winning all he's going to win all the titles in Ring of Honor his group and then Allison Danger shows up out of her Christopher Street connection character and like makeup and colorful attire Danger has some kind of family news she wants to tell Steve but before she can say it Steve freaks out at her for interrupting his promo he alludes to helping her out the last few years and gets mad at her before he storms off, which is, ooh, foreshadowing. Well, also, we should, we should note, this is the first uh, indication that they're related, actually, on one of these DVDs. They never acknowledged that prior to this. 
Yeah. The only thing we got ever before this was there was a segment where Steve Kieran was commentating an Alice in Danger match and he called her or a match she was involved in and he called her like a slut or something. And I feel like that was kind of a wink of, you know, he's going in so hard on her that if you know that they're relatives, it's kind of an in-joke. But yeah, this is the first time they ever hint that they might be related. Although and I find for, it- for the record, they're brother and sister. There's possibly, it's possible, you know, the, the Alice in Danger has been out of the spotlight for long enough that it's possible that some people don't know that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's good that you uh, bring that up. I also thought it was funny that even though they're trying to do this angle that um, is kind of, well, I wouldn't say shoot angle, but it's playing off of reality, he still calls her, he just calls her danger. Yeah, and actually, you know, the, the whole thing is like she comes out, she annoys him, he's a heel, so he, he reams her out. But he's like he's just he's it, she does it in such a weird way. Like he's speaking in riddles. Like he's just like be a superstar, danger, be a superstar. It's like that that sentence makes no sense in that circumstance. Like it's I don't know. It's just like it's a little bit like trying too hard. But I I I, I they're trying to plant seeds for uh, Alice and what Alice and Danger is going to do next, and the relationship between those two uh, characters, people, whatever. It's also weird because the way the segment goes, she like comes up to, to Steve and it's like Steve I have to tell you something about the family or, or some some something it's very vague and Karina doesn't even let her get it out like for she almost acts like maybe she has something bad to tell Steve yeah. and, and to me like he, he his reaction like you said was to be like you're a superstar you're a superstar you, you know you're you know you you take the mic then you're interrupting my promo which is i know he's supposed to be a heel but the reaction when someone might be breaking like horrible family news to you probably shouldn't be like you're hogging my mic time and you're just a glory hound because he's, he's just that dastardly yeah he's that evil um next we see highlights of a homicide jay lethal match from the this show had more um, match tapings for their local Philly TV, the High Impact TV show. By the way, we had we reached a milestone with this show. There's no new news about the status of the ROH High Impact TV. Oh, that'll be coming soon. Oh, damn! <laughs> not not in this review, but okay. um, yes, we the streak will come. The streak is broken, but much like when the Undertaker had his streak broken, he will return pathetically one or two <laughs> more times. <laughs> uh, that's a little harsh, but yeah, come on. Man. Um, we, 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 so we get he these will, highlights. He will not rest in peace. <laughs> Nor will I mean. I guess ROH High Impact TV will eventually. <laughs> uh, it's not a peaceful rest for them, mm-hmm. and they're not resting in power either, as CM Punk might like to say. Mm-hmm. But I believe this is the first time Jay Lethal ever wrestled in Ring of Honor. And one thing Ring of Honor does for this show that they changed from a different show was. Another show when they did the high impact TV tapings, they showed clips from all the matches in a row as one segment. Here they they're going to sprinkle them throughout the the night, and for each one they're going to show them in black and white for some reason. I just, guess just, just to, for contrast sake. Yeah, yeah. Although we will get a weird thing later where um, low key at the end of the night we'll also have a promo that's randomly black and white when none of the other backstage promos are, including the Steve Carino one that follows it. So oh, there, there is one other promo that is in black and white, but we'll, I'll get to my theory oh, oh. on that. I'll get to my theory on that later. Okay. Oh, this is great that you have a theory because I was confused, but. So, yeah, I think this was Lethal's thir- first match. He's building the graphic as Jay Lethal, which will come into play later. Um, it's funny to see a shrimpier, skinnier Jay Lethal with all his hair. 
the highlights of the match made it look like it's actually something I might have wanted to see, and Homicide wins with the cop killer. Jay Lethal was like literally like 18 here, right? He must have been super young. I don't know his exact age, but skinnier, just sprightlier, young Jay Lethal. Although, he, you know, I mean, he still looks pretty youthful today. It's not like he's an old man, but he's quite, this is definitely... He's quite sprightly. Yeah, this is definitely very young Jay Lethal. Yeah. And from there, finally we get our first match of the night. CM Punk getting his rematch from Night of the Butcher. He's taking on Colt Cabana. The winner gets plane tickets and guaranteed to be booked on every show. CM Punk defeats Colt Cabana this time, winning by pinfall in 9 minutes, 24 seconds after he hits the Pepsi Plunge. Matt, did you think this match was better than the first match they had in Ring of Honor? I did, and you know, I also liked that match a lot more than you did. But I thought this was better. It was shorter. It was tighter. It was um, had more intensity. I, I also enjoy the fact that I wrote uh, my notes kind of sloppily, so it looks like it's CM Punk versus Cubano. <laughs> ticket. Um, oh, that's the best sandwich to wrestle. Yeah, I wrestle that sandwich every month. Yeah. So first of all, it's worth noting Ray Murrow is back on commentary, which is yes. he's you know he seems like a nice guy, but he's replacing the nicest guy in history. Jeff Gorman, so I'm never going to be that happy about it. But this is, uh, so that's Jug- Doug Gentry in his second ever ROH commentary appearance. And he will be the, he will be back for a long time to come. After that, he'll be uh, one of the two regulars on most of the upcoming shows in 2003. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought that this match was good. Um, they did a lot of stuff where they reversed stuff from the previous match, which is good because we watched the previous match so recently, so we really noticed it. You know, stuff like um, Punk trying that rope walk that uh, that we both criticized last month, and uh, Cabana, Cabana kind of pulling him off. Um, I thought that it was less choreographed. I remember last month I sort of thought that the match seemed like a very indie-like rehearsed style of match. And, uh, and this one uh, didn't seem quite so bad in that respect. Um, and, you know, just, it just felt more organic. Cabana dominated early. Um, he did this, like, cool stretch thing where he pulled Punk's arms back. Um, and then he does... Uh, so you know how you know Punk does the thing where you pull his legs and he does the flip? Um, but instead, this time, he, 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 like, flipped out into almost like a sunset flip kind of move onto Cabana, which I thought was cool. You also had Cabana blocking the Shining Wizard. Um, this is also the first time that uh, Murrow... I don't believe it was mentioned on either of the previous uh, uh, appearances of Punk that Punk is straight edge, um, we, you know, which obviously is one of the biggest points in his character. And this is, I think, the first time that it's mentioned. And um, and uh, Lovey kind of foreshadowed. He's like, well, but, you know, I'm not too crazy about that whole straight edge means I'm better than you saying, but he is straight edge, blah, blah, blah. So they, they, it feel, felt like they knew they had plans for him. Yeah, because it felt a little other out of place otherwise, because at this point, Punk was a, portrayed as a baby face. So this idea of, you know, he's referencing an, a, a gimmick he's doing outside that's a heel gimmick, you know, that idea of he's not just straight edge, but he's really bragging about and saying that makes me a better person than everyone else. Yeah. Um, but th- there were some other cool highlights. Uh, Cabana hit an inverted superplex, which you don't see that often, and I thought that was really cool. Um, you know, the, the Punk did a belly-to-belly superplex, which the crowd really loved. Then he did an airplane spin, which is not something that, at least you know, later on, Punk did not do that very often. Um, 
uh, Cabana blocked the reverse Rana, which was you know, one of the big spots from the previous match. But then Punk finally hits the Shining Wizard and then hits the Pepsi Plunge and wins the match. Um, it was more intense than I expected. You know, it felt like you know last match. The last match felt sort of like a babyface match, even though I guess Cabana was de facto heel. Um, but I thought this was. Uh, I thought this one was better. It was shorter. It was. It was more intense. Um, I also one other commentary note. Uh, Gabe Sapolsky uh, or Chris Lovey, he mentioned a steel videotaping the two guys, and he was like, "Oh, maybe we'll see road stories from these two. And uh, <laughs> Cabana must have watched this DVD in like 2008 because he apparently got the idea to to do uh, actual wrestling road diaries the DVD with this friends. Might, this might be the most secretly influential res- like indie wrestling match that doesn't get talked about because. I also wonder, I mean, I don't think this is the case, but it would be funny if Brian Danielson was backstage when CM Punk pulled out that airplane spin and was like, hmm, maybe I should make this a thing for a few months in all of indie wrestling in a couple years. Like, yeah, maybe I should wait two years and then really <laughs> get into this whole move. It was interesting to see Punk just randomly pull that out when it would become, like, for it felt like for two or three months, the, the airplane spin was the thing in indie wrestling thanks to... Uh, Brian Danielson. Well, speaking of so, Brian Danielson and spinning, we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I agree. I thought this match, I, I liked the first match these two had in Ring of Honor less than you. I thought I'm right with you on this match. I thought it was an outright good match. I agree with pretty much everything you said on this match. Um, I, I felt like it was, even though it, it, it was shorter, but it was... More, felt more action packed. It felt a little. It still had a bit of that feeling of just let's do whatever cool thing we can think of. Like oh god, oh god, we have to get over in front of a new crowd. But way less of that feeling. And like you said, I, I know Punk from listening to the shoot interview he did with a uh, Samoa Joe talking about their history of matches. Punk's a big fan of what he calls learned spots or just basically referencing things you did in the last match against that opponent. And as you said, this match is just full of that stuff. It really rewards you. It's one of the first matches watching Ring of Honor that rewards you for watching all the shows because, or in this case, just Night of the Butcher. But how many people would watch Night of the Butcher if you weren't watching every show? It's the only thing in history that rewards you for watching Night of the Butcher, honestly. (laughs) It's got one good match on it, but uh, yeah, no, I, I like but, the show. I'm just saying it's never, yeah, it's almost never referenced again in any part of live of human life. But as you said, it it um it, they do so many callbacks to that match. The only thing that was a little bit weird about that was all the callbacks were CM Punk doing things he did that succeeded the first time, and Colt Cabana countering all of them. At least the first time, some of the moves get countered once, and then he's a- Punk is able to hit them when he tries a second time. But it's kind of a weird story because Colt Cabana won the first match, and in this match, it's like Colt's learned all of CM Punk's tricks, but CM Punk just wins anyway. Like it should almost be a reverse of that story. You would almost think it should be Punk has learned all of Colt Cabana's moves. He counters everything he does, and th- and then that gets him the win where he couldn't win before. But it was still interesting point. I wouldn't have thought of that. It was still a well-told story anyway. It's just a kind of a weird story where it's like Colt's gotten scouted Punk even better, but this is the match he loses. Um, I, I really liked... I thought Gabe's commentary for a few matches this night were, was actually better in some respects. 
than it has been. I'll also note when you mentioned that this is Doug Gentry coming back as Ray Murrow, um, Gabe introduces him as, he says, joined as always by Ray Murrow. And it's weird because there's no acknowledgement of what happened to Jeff Gorman. And before this, Doug Gentry had only ever in, um, done color commentary for one Ring of Honor show. So it's this weird, almost like non-acknowledgement of what's happened. Like they, just, nev- they never acknowledged Eric Arjula when he left, and they never acknowledged Donnie B when he left, so it's keeping in the grand tradition. <laughs> and um, I also liked about Gabe's commentary, I thought he was good at pointing out a lot of the callbacks in this match, so if you didn't know or notice, he, he's at least referencing some of them. And I, I think Gabe was really inter- interesting and um, honest in how he put the stipulation over on commentary. Because, you know, a lot of commentators, they make the mistake of trying to sell something bigger than it is. And Gabe himself has done that. He'll do it later tonight, actually. But he do- in this match, he's very real about it. He says he doesn't act like the loser will have the Ring of Honor career end. He says what he does say is that they'll be the loser will be more than welcome to come back to Ring of Honor. They just might not be booked on every show. He says maybe they'll be booked on every other show and that can make it hard to build momentum. And he also says, you know, hey, the difference between driving and flying and paying your own hotel and not paying it, that might be the difference between you like losing money working Ring of Honor or not. And I thought that was a pretty refreshing bit of honesty to actually acknowledge that like look if we don't provide the perks to some of these guys they might actually lose money working for us which is a reality of indie wrestling that i don't think people want to mention during the show usually but gabe does here yeah i like that too i i do think there's an element to him and his commentary that does feel refreshingly honest and sometimes you know feeling honest is as important as being honest when you're talking about it in a performative sense yeah, and it just... Which is what in this a way, is, it's a performance, so... It makes it hit hard, because I was making fun of it on the last show, like, the step, like, they're fighting over a plane ticket, you know, instead of driving. But then, when he puts it in that... When he puts it in those terms of just, hey, this might be the difference between, like, breaking even or making a little money working with us, or losing money just to wrestle, like, that puts it in a more realistic context that does make you think, well... Yeah, that does have meaning, and that does make me care a little bit more. Uh, and, yeah, this was a good, outright good match. I agree with you also about the stretch Colt Cabana did, where he has Punk in, a, I guess, an Indian deathlock position almost, and then he just pulls Punk's arms behind his back and stretches them. And even though the Billy Goat's curse move, that um, the kind of inverted Boston Crab that Cabana does, I think is a cool move too. I actually think this is a cooler move than that. Might like, be harder to pull off though. You have to like kind of lose your balance sometimes. Yeah. And just good match, better uh, than the first match. I think these two are a good addition to the roster. They're, they're, they're lively, they have personality, and the crowd is into them. And so yeah. far, so far, the crowd seemed really good. I thought they were really hot for this match. Mm-hmm. And um, especially when you consider, I mean, Punk and Cabana were had some steam on the indies, but they hadn't reached a certain level yet. And, you know, at the end of the match, they're cheering and punks telling them to clap more. And, you know, they're, they're game for this already. And it was a good match. So, um, next we, let me just get, take a look here. 
Oh, there's one other thing I have to mention about the commentary. This is the bad point of Ring of Honor commentary, which is Gabe does this thing I'm already seeing as a pattern he does a few times, which is at the end of the match, even though they're kind of in a mini feud right now, Gabe does the thing again where he goes, you know, I wouldn't mind these two being seeing these two as a tag team one day, where he's just always telegraphing the booking. Like he, like he did the same thing with the Briscoes at Scramble Madness, where he goes, you, you know, I think if Mark Briscoe hadn't joined the Prophecy, we would have seen them have one more match and then start tagging together when Mark turned 18. And I feel like if Gabe was the announcer for WrestleMania 4, he would have been like, man, it's a shame that Hulk Hogan held Macho Man, because I bet you they could have had a great match. But, you know, maybe they'll become some kind of mega power of a tag team that would work together but slowly lose their friendship. And I don't know. It's a shame that won't happen. Like, he's always just telegraphing the booking, knowing way too much for what his role is supposed to be as an announcer. It's a good point. I feel like I, I, I'm going to think of an example where the WWF actually did do that, where they basically telegraphed booking on commentary, but I can't come up with it off the top of my head yet. I mean, I'm sure there are instances, but Gabe seems to do it a fair bit. And oh, yeah, no, he we, does it way too much. And we, talk, we talked before, I think, also once about, I think you mentioned how the second somebody gets injured, like, Gabe instantly knows what the injury is, even when it wouldn't be obvious to anybody watching. Like, oh, he clearly, you know, cracked his collarbone on that yeah. or something. Like, like he not must that, have dislocated but. his pinky on that move. <laughs> yeah. So... But again, I hate that I'm ribbing him because I think this was actually one of Gabe's better nights on commentary so far. But there were a couple things he said like that. Um, coming down the ba- stairs backstage next, Homicide runs into the Backseat Boys. The Backseat Boys reference their glory by honor match where they called out Homicide and said they'd wrestle him with any partner. Steve Carino came out and, and there was miscommunication during the match. Carino attacked Homicide and left him for dead. The backseat boys, you know, say they're sorry about what happened there. They um, they just wanted a, a match. They didn't want anything crazy like that happening. Homicide says it's all cool. He tells them to beat down Special K tonight, but he tells them to watch out for the hit squad. And this is about as chill and friendly as Homicide gets. Yeah, and I think, it's like the, I think the gimmick is that it's supposed to be a surprise. You see those two run into each other. Homicide obviously... Shown to have a, a hot-headed streak with what he did to Carino, and you're so you're supposed to be like surprised when he he and the Backseat Boys are cordial to each other. Yeah, they're did, I, did, I, did, I, did I say Backstreet? Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I know I've made that mistake on a past show too. This, okay. this is going to be tough. We we've got to get through the next period quickly. Because and also, this is I gonna... just think about the Backstreet Boys all the time, so it's hard for me to not say their name. Wait. <laughs> uh, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna try and act like, like reference a song of theirs I really liked. I couldn't even think of a song, so well, well, I failed. So it's okay that you didn't say it. I want it that way. So <laughs> we did not set that up beforehand. Nope. Um, next, we well, go. If to... we did, that would be embarrassing. But go ahead. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I would be proud of that, Matt. Right, um, Gary Michael Capetta is in the ring. He tells us that Christopher Daniels has requested some mic time. Daniels comes out with Simply Luscious, who Gabe refers to for the first time as Simply Luscious Ronnie Stevens. I, so, it's always fun to note when like they do a shift in the character, and we're like, okay, there's the moment. Yeah, it's it, 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 I don't know if they were ever planning on transitioning 
transitioning her just to being Ronnie Stevens. I don't think that ever happens, but for they did for on this show, he calls, he goes, Hey, that's simply luscious Ronnie Stevens. And Daniels then calls out Alexis Lurie for attacking luscious at the last ring of honor show. And he challenges her to face luscious at the next Philly show, which would be three months from now. Lurie, Alexis Lurie comes out, says they can wrestle right now, which prompts luscious to immediately attack her from behind and brings us to Simply Luscious defeating Alexis Lurie via pinfall in 41 seconds after Christopher Daniels hit the last rights on Lurie when 12, the ref wasn't looking. 12 for 12. I, that's what I wrote in my notes. I said, we did it. We are 12 for 12 this year on man-on-woman violence. There, there was not a show this year that did not have a man hitting a woman in some form. They literally did it every show in 2002. It's 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 kind of pathetic, actually. Like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I, I guess if I went back and watched WWF or WWE, maybe it would be the same thing. I don't know. Uh, was ECW even this consistent with it? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, ECW, I think, was scummier in how they did it. I don't know if they were this consistent because this definitely seems like it was a mandate that we have to have one of these spots every every show. And, yeah, and, and it's, not, it's not like the crowd like went that crazy for it every time that it was like such a you know I think there's got to be it's got to be more to it than just oh the crowd will love it yeah yeah there's some definitely. weird pathology behind it. It, it it's also it's always interesting to see how Gabe and I guess now at this point Doug treat these women's matches especially since in the first half of the year they were treating them like chances to masturbate like they were a 21 year old see if they're as good at masturbating as brian danielson was at the same age at wrestling but in this match it's weird because gabe and doug they scream like this is no cat fight as they proceed to have a 40 second match that's terrible but like this time they're not doing at least like oh it's so hot I, i you know i love women clawing each other's eyes out they're like oh what great punches this is no cat fight and they give you like they they've so far again like I've said this they've given us no reason to be impressed with Alexis Lurie like we know from you know seeing her through the years that she's a good wrestler but ROH in 2002 have made her their main like woman baby face and they've given us no reason to be impressed with her as a wrestler whatsoever she's done a couple cool moves but like so did Sable you know mm-hmm. but they don't her put her in a position to be impressive. Her whole gimmick is like they always present her like she's a real athlete. She wants real competition, and she gets 40-second matches. You know, she wrestles Mace. She wrestles Alice in Danger when she's barely trained. It looks like she – like, it's just it, – it's it's a lot of lip service. I um, at the end, There's not much else to this. I wrote at the end of my show notes, early Ring of Honor, the secret innovators of intergender wrestling were just kind of creepy. They're kind of creepy. Yeah, well, so, yeah, that's for sure. Um, after this match, Daniels and Luscious are celebrating when Steve Carino makes his way to the ring with a microphone, or he grabs the mic. Gabe notes that Ronnie Stevens is Carino's real-life girlfriend, so that's like one of those weird shoot acknowledgments as opposed to his fake on-camera girlfriend, of which he has none, because Ronnie Stevens at this point has been his on-camera girlfriend as well. There's Right, they, they, were, they were making out, it was a whole thing. Yeah, exactly. So it was a little weird that he like really stressed like this is his real life girlfriend. He feuded with Rudy, he feuded with Rudy Boy Gonzalez in part over this fact. Had a yeah. play match with him. <laughs> and um, Dave wrote in the Observer that this was meant to, that this was 
obviously this was the kickoff of the prophecy the group feud which would be steve carino's group like such a great original name and dave wrote in the observer at the time signed to the effect of that this was meant to kick off the feud and that was feud was supposed to be a big part of carried what 2003 what carried 2003 and was supposed to turn christopher daniel's baby face one thing i thought thought was interesting was carino gets on the mic here he does a bit of a promo that's similar to what he did backstage where he gets on the fans for not having his back during tough times. He puts Daniels on notice, telling him that he's putting together an elite group of talent that will go after all the Ring of Honor ta- titles in 2003, which of course is a big challenge to because the Daniels group is the people that hold all the titles right now. He tells Luscious that he can't have her telling Chris all his secrets, so he dumps her right on the spot and she walks to the back crying. Carino keeps saying this thing through these shows where it's not personal, it's just business. But then he tells Daniels that if he wants to start a war, throw the first punch at him right now. And he gives him a free shot, which seems like, that seems like something you wouldn't do if it was just business. That seems pretty personal. Yeah. And uh, very unbusiness-like there. But Daniels reverses it. He says, no, Carino, like, you throw the first punch on me. But then when Carino was thinking about doing it, Daniels bails out of the ring and says he'll deal with this all later. Just two tough guys who don't want to punch each other. <laughs> I, I think the thing that was weird for me about this part of the segment was knowing what Dave said, that the idea of this segment long-term was to turn Daniels' face. It, it was weird that Carino comes out and he gets a face reaction and then he turns it heel. Like the crowd's even chanting zero one at one point, but then with his promo, he gets, he turns it to a heel reaction. And then after that, when Daniels gets on the mic, now the crowd is primed to treat Daniels as a face and they cheer him. And then he says something on the mic to get the fans to turn on him too. So even though uh, the apparent ultimate goal of this was to make Daniels a baby face right now, they're really working hard to make sure it's a heel versus heel feud that it's, Two guys who are both calling down the audience that are jerks, that cheat, that also just happen to not like each other either. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I actually, I, I mentioned this maybe at the last show. Daniel's character is so interesting to me in that his, his consistent quality is that he will always try to defuse a situation and not get mad. He'll, he'll always just be like, oh, just let's, let's figure it out later. Like the, any promo where someone's like stepping to him or whatever, he's like, oh, let's just move on. Let's just move on. He's very non-aggressive for a wrestling heel. I find he's that, like, that's very he, interesting to me. He's like the most mature wrestling heel since Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah. Like how many major heels are just like, let's talk out our problems. Like, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> I'm not going to get mad over this. Like that's, that should have been his catchphrase. Yeah, I really like that, and I think there is something that wrestling could, if anyone who's involved in wrestling that listens, because we are like the velvet underground of wrestling podcasts, where it seems like everyone who listens to us either has a podcast or is influential in wrestling somehow, um, in some degree, on the indies. Like, really? The, I, yeah, I didn't know that. You know more than the, I do. Go, but go the, on. The, you can there's definitely later. a few. But, we'll, um, talk, we'll deal with this later. <laughs> we'll deal with it. Yeah. We'll deal with all of you. But... That would be a good idea to steal, I think, the idea of the, the heel leader who's almost put upon where he's got all these wilder and more volatile personalities, and he's just this guy who you almost feel sorry for, where it's just like, oh, like, come on, guys. Like, can't we be evil the, together? The only like, thing that makes him actually mad is guys shaking hands. <laughs> That's the only bit of civility that he doesn't like. Yeah. But... And Carino keeps calling down the fans after Daniels leaves. He gets pissed when they chant jobber at him. 
And then he says he has one final piece of business, and he calls out, quote, disrespectful young boy homicide. Side runs into the ring for an immediate brawl, but in a flip on what's happened on previous shows, Carino has actually brought a knife to the ring, I mean, a fork to the ring. A knife would have been worse. Fork to the ring, which is, you know, Homicide's favorite weapon. Carino had brought one to the ring. He pulls it out and attacks Homicide with it. And then Carino makes his way to the back. And the segment ends with a line, I know you love Matt, so I'll let you say it. What does Carino yell to a fan that's heckling him? Oh, well, first the fan says, why don't you fix your tie, asshole? And Carino yells, why don't you fix your teeth, Leroy? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. First of all, Leroy—that's a pretty, it's a pretty novel insult, and I like to imagine that he really did have bad teeth. So, perfect. <laughs> I was, I was literally later in the show when they panned to the crowd in that section during some entrance, like trying to find which person might have been Leroy. Like looking, was... looking for Leroy in all the right places. <laughs> so. You two at home, since I didn't really pay attention for most of the show, you know, you can go back and look for Leroy yourself. You know, that's a fun, extra bit of fun for the show. It's, it's, but th- it's th- a new book series that I'm coming out with, Looking for Leroy. <laughs> it's like you, the... You uh, have to find him in every wrestling crowd all over the country. It's the dollar store version of Where's Waldo. That's right. But and that is literally how that segment ended. That's the last line, and then like a second later, cut to black. So, next. Well, before so before you move on to that, so... I have a feeling this was controversial at the time, this whole thing. I really liked it, um, that whole Carino segment. I thought that it was dynamic. I thought that Carino did a good job. He had charisma. He carried the segment. It felt different. ROH really never had a long segment like that built around one guy who hasn't been around much, so it felt like it was like they were. St- it was the start of something new because it's not like Carino had been in so many angles before. Like It's like, okay, we have a new top heel and we're going to like get them over now. And I, I like that. I like when WWE does that, when it's just like, okay, there's a fresh face. I mean, I know Carino's been around, but he was never featured like this. And um, I don't know. I, to me, it worked. It's like, it felt like a new era. And as, as the, for the last show of the year, I like the idea of a new era. I think it worked because, I mean, I don't know if I liked it quite as much as you, but I did think it worked. And I think it worked maybe because Ring of Honor at this time, or just in general, didn't have many of these in-ring promo segments. Like, most of this is the kind of thing that on most Ring of Honor shows would be a backstage segment just on the DVD. So that they went the extra mile and had it in front of the crowd and even made it kind of an official start where you have Gary Michael Capetta coming out and saying, Christopher Daniels has requested some time, you know, to talk to you all. It made it feel different than everything else Ring of Honor would usually do on these shows. Well, it makes sense because, like like I said, it's the coronation of the new top heel, like just out of the blue. And I like that. I I just like the suddenness of it, but it it was sudden but didn't feel like uncomfortably jarring. I also feel like it felt like ECW but in a good way because, you know, that this whole like one segment leads to another segment leads to another segment and it all ties in and, you know, and there's multiple angles happening all at once. But I thought it all made sense other than the Alexis Lurie thing, uh, you know, just being a – uh, fake um, gesture of a woman's match instead of an actual match. I, um, I, I just, I really, I just, I really enjoyed what they were going for here, and I think Carino's performance was good enough to get it over the hump. I agree, and, and Gabe loves to this day, even with Evolve, he loves that one match or one segment runs into another thing he uses that way too much but i feel like this was one of the more elegant seamless ways where i didn't even think about that during this and it hadn't been done in roh that much yeah so so yeah that's a great point too like a very probably one of the better examples i've ever seen of gabe using that that idea 
Next, we get a Dun & Marcos segment where they're setting up the ring before the show. They pause to tell us that they're the top tag team in Ring of Honor, that they are Dun & Marcos. And they say they're going to beat da- Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan at tonight's Ring of Honor TV taping. We then get highlights of that match on the TV taping. And it looked way more competitive than you'd think from the Ring Crew Express versus the tag team champions. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. And there's not much else to say about that, I guess. Nope, it was very short. The hit squatter backstage. Um, Monster Mac cuts a quick short promo where he says he's amped twice. He also and says tonight's the night, which is clearly what Raw stole their intro from. <laughs> they say it like multiple times. Yeah, and Mac, he gets, he punches the wall and cuts this promo, and then Mafia proceeds to cut a longer, better promo against the Backseat Boys, so... Yeah, but... It doesn't didn't work for me because it, it felt awkward. It's like it's too intense for the content. You know what I mean? It's like we're gonna have a scramble match, but like, but he's saying it like he's about to like finish like a blood feud in the cage of death or something. Yeah, I didn't think of it. That's a that's a good point. I also I do think Mafia he is good at giving those intense promos, but yeah, going to what you said, it feels like he sometimes that might be all he knows how to do. He does the very, I'm talking intense, I'm building and screaming, and then I say a line real quiet so you pay attention, and then I talk loud again, and he seems, that seems to be like, he does it very well, but that's mainly what he does. Yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know if he has the range. And I've just found <laughs> out that you're pretty good at it, too. <laughs> I, I was trying to see how loud it was so I don't, like, bother neighbors, uh-huh. but... Um, next we go to a, the scramble match that their promo was building up, and that's the Backseat Boys taking on Special K of Deranged and Angel Dust, taking on the Hit Squad. Special K wins in 10 minutes, 24 seconds, when both members of Special K, K pinned Mafia after Izzy hit, interfered by hitting them with his arm cast. Um, I like this match. I thought this was a good scramble match, and watching this match made me think of how far Ring of Honor has come just in this one year we've watched of the scramble matches. they The first match, you could tell that Gabe from show one, he wanted an element like this on, on his shows. You could tell that he always wanted just a crazy multi-man spot match that usually didn't have much story to it. But you could, it's, it's funny to see how it evolved in this, no pun intended, in the sense of the, the, uh, the first show... The match was called the Ultimate Aerial Elimination Match. It had that unwieldy name. And it had all the Mikey Whipwreck students, and it was Elimination. And then, just within the first few shows, you see he changes the name to the Scramble Match. He changes it so it's not Elimination Matches anymore. It's one fall to a finish. He, a few less of the Mikey Whipwreck guys, he brings Special Can, who are just built for these matches because they inject personality and they're really fun spot fest guys. And it's funny because at the, on the first few shows, these were some of my least favorite segments, and now we're starting to get to the point where I'm sure there's going to be scrambled duds on future shows, but more often than not, in these last three or four shows, like they've been a fun part of the show, like just a reliable, oh, we're going to have a fun scramble match segment. Uh, another thing to bring up here is one of the people in the entourage for Special K tonight is... Jay Lethal, but he's not referred to as Jay Lethal. He's referred to as his special K name, which is Hydro. Except there's a weird bit where Gabe talks about how oh, Jay Lethal was a promising young wrestler. He's throwing it all away, hanging out with these special K boys. But it's weird because 
we never see a segment, maybe that was filmed for the TV show, that explains it. Like, literally all we see is we see Jay Lethal for the first time on the show in the clips of the TV taping match with Homicide. He's building the writing as Jay Lethal, and then he, he comes out here with glow sticks as Hydro, and Gabe says, like, he's thrown it all away. And he, threw, we, we, he threw it all away in 45 minutes. Yeah, like, they're, 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 it's weird because Ring of Honor at this time almost leaned in the other way of they had little segments to explain everything. And this is one time where they just, it feels like a segment is missing to explain why he did that, why he's here, who he is even. Well, Yayo. They, they, yeah, Yayo was going to say also debuted. I, I love it. Each, each new uh, ROH show, there's a new special K member. Uh, but uh, should mention, Joey Matthews was not on the show. Yeah, that's, and he, honestly, he's missed because he's, yeah. One of the great personalities of Special K. He's, he and sort of feels like the glue at this point. Definitely. And I, uh, yeah, I, I love that too. I, was, I had that in my notes where I love that Special K, they just multiply like bacteria. And every show, there's new people, and sometimes they're not even acknowledged. Like the last show had some girls that were there. They never named them or acknowledged who they were. Like I just love that every show, they seem to grow, and it just random people you don't know. Um, yeah, this was a good spot fest. It's the kind of spot fest I like where it's, it's to the point, it's short, it's basically one fun inventive spot after another, it's fast paced. Um, there's a few, some of the highlights were like, I'm sure you have more, but I think Trent Acid at one point, he jumped in the air to dodge a uh, leg sweep. And then as he was falling down through the air, he turned it into a really nice drop kick. I thought the Hit Squad were had their usual good combo of power and flying moves. You know, at one point you might see them power bo- power bomb one member of Special K onto the other one that just got power bombed, and then like a minute later, Mafia might do- be doing another tope through the ropes. You know, and it seems like he's starting to do that a bit more as he's losing a bit of weight. He's starting to you know feel his oats and realize like, oh, I can I can do some things I couldn't do a few months ago, and. Yeah, I mean, did you? Where would you? It's hard to rank these. So many of these scramble matches run together, but where would you rank this in recent scramble matches? Oh, this is near the top for me. Like you said, it was fast. The crowd was really into it, and it just it just clicked. Like there was just it just worked. Like you know, there were some botches by Angel Dust in particular, which the which um, you know the the commentators noted. Uh, you know, like he even botched an arm drag at one point, uh, which is and you know so they just play it off like. Oh, you know, he's, he's, you know, if he wasn't on those drugs. Um, uh, there's another funny Easter egg there where um, they do a double team super kick spot, but but uh, Angel Dust is way late on it. And Gabe goes something to the effect of like, you know, Angel Dust, he's always late. And it's that's in reference to the Scramble Madness match where Special K did a 4-1 drop kick. And Angel Dust was the only one who drop kicked late. So he basically hit air and fell on top of everyone else and gave at that point during that show just laughed and said, what the hell is that? So I like that Gabe's kind of calling Angel Dust out for doing this now on two shows. But he sticks with Angel Dust for a few years, so we must like yeah. him for other reasons. Um, but uh, in general, um, yeah, like, you know, there weren't any moves that were, you know, just like, wow, oh my God. But like you were mentioning, the pacing has just, they've gotten it down. Um, you know, maybe not always, but, you know, this is the perfect amount of time. It was boom, boom, boom. You know, I guess some of the some of the other things that you um, didn't mention was like a, a twisting springboard dive by Deranged to the floor. Mac powerbombed Hydro onto everybody. Um, there was a German suplex where 
Angel Dust was holding Deranged, and so they both flew over. And then, of course, the finish was um, Mafia went for the Burning Hammer, but Dixie hit him with the cane, Izzy hit him with the cast, and Special K won the match. Yeah. So I, I almost call this like junk food wrestling where I, I for I forgot a lot of the details like almost instantly after I watched this match, but I remembered I liked it. Like it's super easy to watch, turn your brain off. It's not going to be something that ever sticks with you, but you're you're going to enjoy it. And I always give extra points to those matches that happened 15 years ago because I feel like those are the matches that age the worst. So when they're still fun in 2017, like I, I give it almost like an extra little credit in my brain. I agree with that. You know, like because you know the the high spots have progressed as they always do, and this still holds up. So mm-hmm. you know, not as something special, but it holds up as something entertaining, which is what you want. Yeah. So this was a good first hour of the show, I will say. I was impressed uh, by how good this show started out. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the first hour because the Punk Cabana match was better than I thought it would be, and this was better than I thought it would be. The Carino Daniel segment, like you said, was inventive. I would argue this was maybe the best first hour of any ROH show so far hmm. in 2002. I'm, try- I'm trying hard to think of one that had a better first hour, and I, I can't. So. One other thing I'll mention that I just thought was funny was uh, at one point, Trent Acid, Mafia kicks Mafia. And if you listen to it mid-sentence, you can hear Gabe hitch up <laughs> just for the slightest half second. Like he's realizing how funny it is that to have to say Trent Acid just Mafia kicked Mafia. So I thought that was cute too. They should have um, stuck with it as a gimmick where every kick to a wrestler is the wrestler's name, then kick. So like, <laughs> like, so like, Loki would Samoa Joe kick Samoa Joe, something like that. <laughs> and um, next we get highlights of another Ring of Honor TV taping match. Jay Briscoe beats Ace Steel with the J Driller, and I think this is Ace Steel's first ever Ring of Honor match. Uh, next is the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title match, two out of three falls. The prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan defeated the SAT of Joel and Jose Mac Joel and Jose Maximo two falls to one in in twenty three minutes fifty nine seconds. The prophecy won the first fall with the revelations, which is a neckbreaker powerbomb combo. The SAT won the second fall after they hit the Spanish Fly on Chris Daniels, and. Daniels pinned uh, Joel with the last rights to win the match and the third fall. Before I give it to you, Matt, I'll just note one thing I noticed was randomly without explaining it, Morgan and Daniels have tag team title belts now. They don't have a trophy anymore. I noticed that as well. Um, yeah, which is which is cool. I think that's better. That's why they do them. That's why they have belts because people like them and they make sense. Um, okay, so as far as this match, so it's fairly infamous, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this is where my views on this show might start to turn from the consensus, and this won't be the last time. But I thought this was okay. Um, it's noted because it's notable because um, the SAT um, do not uh, do not appear to be in the best cardiovascular shape down the stretch, and so like there are certain moments where that's noticeable, which I'll get to. Um, and to the point where even Gabe on commentary notes it later in the show even. He's still razzing them about it. Yeah. But for most of the match, I feel like it's solid. The storyline seems to be, at least based on how the announcers are trying to get it across, that that the SAT are surprising 
the prophecy by going with a basic tag team style, you know, with like arm bars and headlocks and just like working basic holes, not doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and, you know, just like old school, like heat segments. It's not great because like, you know, when they do these hot tags, the crowd doesn't really get up for them. I don't know if this was before or after the Conan segment. I, I don't know if you, uh, if you know when that appeared in the show. I'm not sure. I think it might have been after the Conan segment. I'm not sure, though. The crowd does seem noticeably quieter at the start than it was in the previous match, which feel, makes me feel like something has happened. But, you know, just as far as just basic wrestling stuff, um, I thought it was okay. You know, they do, like, double-team neckbreaker powerbomb um, by, uh, by the Prophecy. Um, and then... Uh, um, but but like the but Jose is not the legal man, so Gabe mentions that he kind of blames it on the refs. Uh, I guess his inexperience. So like, th- there's a lot of stuff on this show where the legal man thing kind of gets messed up. But obviously, so that's what that's how the prophecy get their first pinfall, um, and then they go back to work on uh, to on Jose and Morgan hits or Morgan with a um, like a almost like a neck stretch on Joel, but Jose breaks it up. It's like an arm neck stretch thing. I don't. It's hard to explain. Um, but and this is when you could tell the SAT gets winded, and Joel comes back with punches. But Daniels takes him down into the Koji clutch. Jose breaks it up. Uh, there's a double clothesline knockdown spot with Daniels and Joel. Joel and Morgan puts on a chin lock on Joel. You know, it's not like the crowd is shitting on it. You know, they're not loud, but it's not like they're like chanting boring or anything. Um, Joel hits a clothesline on both Prophecy members, and Jose gets the hot tag and hits a double drop kick. And it's, it's funny because like the hot tags are like very traditional hot tags, you know, just like drop kicks and back drops. And then they, the SAT's finally starting their high flying. Jose hits a spinning DDT on Morgan off of Joel's shoulders, but Daniels breaks it up. And then SAT hit the Spanish fly on Daniels to tie up the match. So this was like the second fall was very short. And then so you get to the final segment, and the crowd's starting to come alive for it. Uh, Joel DDTs Morgan on the uh, on the apron. Jose goes for a dive over Joel, and this is this is where it kind of goes downhill. So Joel doesn't make it over the ropes. He like he his legs hit the rope, and he pretty much falls on his head on the uh, on the on the uh, apron, which is uh, does not look pretty. Um, and that's when so so Morgan uh, reverses the Maximo explosion into a swinging neckbreaker for two. Daniels hits the Angels way. I mean, Daniels hits the Angels wings, but Joel breaks it up. Um, then Daniels misses the BME, and uh, the Maximo explosion is hit on him. Morgan reverses a, a, a spinning DDT into a spine buster. It's a it's a spinning DDT off of the shoulders. Um, Daniels finally hits the last rights on Joel for the win. I, I would say, despite the SAT getting tired and the botch and all that stuff. Uh, the lack of following tag rules, it was better than I expected. It, like, it's like that's, I know a low bar, this, but this was not a bad match. And I appreciated the SAT's effort. Uh, and I think the announcers did a good job telling the story of the match, which helped a lot. It should have been better. It was too long. The, the SAT definitely needs some work. But this was nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. See, I, um, I thought this was a below-average match. But I, I think a lot of it has to do with how much you think you're like how you deal with um let me put it this way I, if a match if this match was 14 minutes i'd probably say it was average the sheer length of it made me put to below average because i have a lot less patience 
for a really long average match than a regular length or short average match. I feel like if you're going to go long, I, I, I just don't, if you're going to go 24 minutes, it, it's got to be better than just okay. Um, I felt like we, this match, it was, it was special. It was um, the SATs. One real chance in Ring of Honor to show that they could be something other than just scramble match fodder. They were getting a lot of time against, if not the two best workers in the company, although they're good, solid workers, the two most veteran hands that I think are probably going to be really smooth and 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 be there for you that you can count on. And they had all this time. They could even win a fall. And I feel like this was disappointing. This was the worst they. This was the best they could come up with. Where I just don't find their offense in the first part of this match compelling. Where you know Gabe's even talking about, oh, this is way slower than we expect. And it's not like they're super slow. It's just it's very generic mid-tempo stuff for the first half of this match. And I don't find them in control doing that stuff compelling. Uh, a lot of guys make that stuff compelling. They didn't. And then as we get to the second half of the match, they do start getting blown up, which, as you mentioned, is what this match is famous for. I found a Christopher Daniels shoot interview where he talked about he remembered this match as being disappointing. And he said he thought that you know, he said that the special I mean, I keep saying calling them special K. I wish they were special K. Mm-hmm. I keep saying that the SAT were really blown up. He like he emphasizes like they were blown up, and he says I think they realized they need to they needed to work on their cardio or maybe not. He said something like that to that effect, and he also Christopher Daniels also didn't like the idea of it being a two out of three falls match because he said there was no issue between us, and he says I I don't think it works when you do like a two out of three falls big step match for like there's no feud no it, it was just added to be added. And I, I don't. I honestly don't know if I agree with that, but that's. But you know, he knows better than I do. I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm just giving Cause, his cause, opinion. Cause, yeah, because two out of three falls isn't exactly like a, like a, a hate a hated rivalry sort of stipulation. You know, it's 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 more like a a, com- a competitive rivalry sort of situation or stipulation, I should say. Uh, I could also see Daniels regretting that also just maybe in the back of his mind, like maybe if this wasn't two out of three falls, we wouldn't have had to go this long. And then maybe I would have been having to wrestle two blown up guys that were really exhausted. And I guess before I finish my thoughts, I'll, I'll note that even at the time this match didn't have a good reputation. I'll get Dave's live reports from the observer. It says here, a, he calls this match a two out of three fall match that went twenty three fifty nine, which, as it turned out, was way too long. As the SATs, who aren't nearly as good as a lot of people make them out to be, were exposed in this match. So that's about as harsh as non eighties sassy Dave gets. Like to although, he outright, although, although he did not see the match, so yeah, he didn't see the match. But to that's a pretty serious Dave shade. I he usually doesn't get that harsh to say outright. Like they're not nearly as good as people think, and that they were exposed. Like yeah, I that, I, I still think I actually think that I would have liked this match less back then. I think like just the taste of change and like presentation has changed to the point where this seems like just this, the basicness of the match is more appealing than it would have been in two thousand two. And it's it's funny because one defense of them here, I'll say, is they were clearly very blown up. But when you think of SATs in a long match getting legendarily blown up, you think, oh, there's probably going to be a million botches. But other than the really horrific botch you mentioned where 
they try and jump over over one of their one tries to jump on, off the other's back and he can't just get his legs to jump high enough and so he crash and burns there isn't really a ton of obvious botches they they do what's required of them there's one point where i think one of the maximos has to take a double um hip toss that you can tell they're having a real hard time just making the jump to get all the way over but for the most part where you see them be tired is I noticed whenever they didn't have to do a move, they were just lying motionless on the mat dead. Like they weren't selling, they weren't moving or emoting. It was just like every time I don't have to do any, a move, I'm going to try and catch my breath. I can't do anything else, but just breathe in and out. But, but I'll give them credit when they did have to get up, even if they were a little bit slow, they still did what they had to do. It looked like, I mean, I don't know if they had to change things on the fly, but from the outside, it's not like they were just blowing things left and right. No, not at all. And I, you know, a lot of it probably is the help of Daniels and uh, Morgan, like you said, they're being such good hands. But yeah, I, the match wasn't a mess. Like I could see your argument that it was below average. I thought it was maybe about average. You know, I thought it was fine. Like I thought, it, you know, it was not that bad. Like which is, I thought it was going to be that bad. So it's a, 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 you know, relative to expectations, I guess. And. Um, I also, like you said, I thought the two best spots the SAT did were the they do that cool spot, like you mentioned, where they have the guy in the ring and then the SAT members on the apron, and he basically DDTs the guy through the ropes onto the apron, which is cool. And then they do the uh, the almost doomsday device swinging DDT off the shoulders of one guy. And I wrote to myself, maybe the SAT should just do nothing but DDT-based moves, because those seem to be... They seem to have a pretty good handle on those, and those are pretty cool. The concept of a, of a hot indie tag team basing their entire offense around one kind of move is a little bit ahead of its time. <laughs> and it'll never work. No. Uh, the one thing, one thing that annoyed me, too, is this wasn't a big deal, but there's this convoluted sequence where um, uh, one Maximo puts a Boston Crab on Morgan and then his brother has a camel clutch on Daniels, and we're supposed to be impressed because Morgan is on top of Daniels, kind of touching them while they're both in submission moves simultaneously. And from there, the SAT transitions so that one of them still has Daniels in the camel clutch, and the other Maximo like runs the ropes over and over again, back and forth, back and forth, and then he's building, and he finally hits like a really shitty one-leg basement drop kick that even Gabe calls out on commentary, like, oh... Don't think he got all of it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I also felt like they lost. Uh, uh, Daniels, in his shoot interview, felt like they lost the crowd in the middle of the match. I do think it. you can't hear the crowd. Like, they never turn on this match, like you said. They never boo it or, or like, boring. But they definitely, the start of the match, it feels like they could be maybe receptive. And then you can feel them check out for parts of this match. Like, just zone out on it that's true then they get back into it and then zone out again after that botch and um yeah the other thing interesting thing was gabe really just hearing him and doug some other way they treat the match where at first you know gabe is like oh this is an interesting strategy you know the set are being much more old school and i've noticed that whenever gabe calls a match like old school or a throwback Eight times out of ten, it's not a good match. Like, I don't know if that's his bowling shoe ugly, but I've heard him also use that term for some of the recent a uh, 
uh, Michael Shane matches, you'd be like, oh, this is really methodical, old-school wrestling. And then Michael Shane doesn't get booked again after a while. So, And then later on, like I think Doug Gentry points out, I think it's Doug, like one of the the SAT is carrying extra weight on his midsection. And then later in the match, they talk about one of the SAT making a lazy cover. And then by the end of the match, they're just saying, you know, like Gabe's openly doubting, like they've got to go to some of their higher risk moves. Like he's starting to get on them about it. So it was interesting to hear that commentary. It didn't make them look good. I think the way they were kind of nipping at them a little bit like that. And did you also notice Gabe, when he's talking about the history of Daniels and Morgan, he uh, he mentions some of their victories, including Gabe says they beat American Dragon and that other guy in there, Michael Modest. Yeah, I noticed like, it. It's uh, whatever, you know. Like, like it's such a non-burn, like yeah. that other guy in there, Michael Modest. Like, it's not even a criticism. It's just like, oh. Like, he, he could have just said if he wanted to, like, burn him, like, American Dragon and some other guy. But he was like, that other guy in there, Michael Modest. Like, he still brought up his name. Yeah, so he's, just, he's just calling out how petty he is more than anything else. Yeah. But, yeah, again, I think, I think my feelings on this match actually aren't that much different than yours. It's just when it, I, don't, I don't suffer average matches as that go long, maybe as much. But this match... Like you said, it's infamous. I don't think it's... When you hear about an infamous bad match, this isn't terrible. It's not unwatchable. It's No, it's it's not worth watching because it's not interesting, good or bad. And this would also end up being... Um, I feel like the SCT never got this chance again. Like, this was them, their chance to be a part of the tag team, like, title scene. And after this, they work all of 2003, but they're basically almost exclusively a scramble match fodder team. They lose more of those matches than they win, and they get one tag title shot against the Briscoes at the pre-show of Final Battle 2003. But I feel like this was their chance maybe to be more of the tag title scene and not the scramble scene, and they they don't they never get another chance after this. Right. They were a major pushed act in 2002, and they will not be in 2003, and it's because of this match. Yeah, so I felt a little bad for them with that, knowing that this was, watching this match is kind of like watching a door being closed, but, I mean, it is what it is. Yep. And we see clips of another ROH TV taping match, Samoa Joe beats the Outcast Killers in a two-on-one handicap match. Um, next is a very brief backstage clip of Special K talking to Jody Fleisch into partying with them, and by talking him into, I mean simply just asking him. Yeah, and then you see him go, oh, and then they cut away. (laughs) It was literally like a 20-second segment. Uh And then we get the new Christopher Street connection of Eddie Guapo and Mace with Alice in Danger back in the Alice in Danger seat. Christopher Street Connection character, beating the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke via DQ. I didn't get a time on this because it was a clip match, and I didn't bother to time it myself. Um, this is clipped. I wrote, thank God for that. We clipped, see a few clipped st- with no commentary. Yeah, no. Th- another one of those clipped matches Yeah, where they don't do commentary. Um, DeVito gets kissed by Mace. The Carnage crew goes nuts. Hits everyone with hubcaps, including the ref. Uh, Guapo and Mace both bleed on this, which feels like kind of a waste of blood for such a nothing inconsequential match. But did you notice the gimmick was that Guapo was doing a bad job of like being gay? Like he would, like he would hug instead of kiss, and like so, so um, Mace was like mad at him for not going all the way with the gimmick. 
Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. The gimmick was Guapo. He wants to play along, but he's not going to go as far as Mace. He doesn't. He doesn't feel comfortable. And right. um, of course, there's a little bit of the crew. At one point, asked the crowd, "Like, do you want to see gay bashing?" Which, and then they they call it Christopher Street Connection faggots. Which, and uh, yeah, just a nothing segment, just to give the current crew something to do on the show. Yep. Well, you know, they could say that word because they're heels, quote-unquote. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's what they think. I guess if you really wanted to stretch, you could say the Christopher Street Connections finisher is called the Gay Basher, but, I mean, that's not what they were referencing. But But that other word, not so much. Yeah, there's no move they have called faggot. As far as I can tell. Next, we get a homicide promo backstage. He keeps telling us over and over the last couple shows that he's the king of strong style. He goes on to reveal that he's on probation, which I think Gabe mentioned on one show's commentary just offhandedly. Well, also, he's, also when he he stabbed Karina with the fork, the hit squad were like, no, you're probation. Oh, yeah. So it has been mentioned a couple times. I missed that. That's a good catch. Um, he also mentions he's a single parent and he can't get a job because of the scars on his forehead, which all look like blading gig scars. So maybe you shouldn't have done that. Uh, he says he's... He says he's aiming for the Ring of Honor title because the champ gets the most money and he wants to provide for his son so he doesn't become a gangbanger or drug dealer like he was. He says if anyone gets his way, they'll see a different, angrier homicide. I wrote my notes, wait, there's an even angrier homicide? Because <laughs> like, he always seems pretty certainly and angry. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, more foreshadowing, setting up what's going to come tonight. Jody, ne- our next match is Jody Fleisch defeating Amazing Red via pinfall in six minutes fourteen seconds after Jody hits the seven twenty DDT. Um, this was pretty. Di- this was fun for what it was, but also very disappointing because it only went six minutes fourteen seconds. If I had been a fan at this time, this would have been one of the matches I would have was most excited to see to see like the big crazy high flyer from Britain. Russell, the it flyer of his day in America, and it only goes six minutes. Dave Meltzer writes in The Observer that the crowd got mad when Special K came to the ringside about three minutes in, and people figured out that a run-in was coming. They were even madder when the match ended after such a relatively short period, even though it was also a good match, including a 720 DDT by Fleisch and a high shooting star to the floor. Match was booked for 10 to 12 minutes, but Red was still injured, and they went home early. Um, he says after the match and the beatdown that we'll describe later, he says it ended with the crowd chanting "fuck you, Gabe" in reference to Booker Gabe Sapolsky, which I don't think I heard, but no, definitely I didn't hear that. That maybe that was edited out, but yeah. so yeah, this was they did a few big spots. It didn't have it wasn't like the craziest pace, but Fleisch did do his shooting star press to the floor. Um, Red does this. Styles class variation where he holds the guy like in the opposite direction and then falls backwards instead of forwards, and the guy's head falls into the mat, and that looked cool. Um, they did some dives. They did their version of a red key match style fast sequence that gets applause at the end. I, I did notice that, yeah, the crowd did go down a bit when Special K came out because I think, yeah, they could tell like. We know what's coming then, even though they didn't see the backstage segment. And they, the special K interviewer, they, um, what they do is they pull red out of the, I mean, they pull flesh out of the way when red's going for the infrared, which judging by how many people 
red has hurt doing the infrared this year they may have actually saved jody fleisch's life exactly, doing that exactly. um and then fleisch recovers hits the 720 ddt and wins this was entertaining for what it was, but if again, if I had bought the DVD or a ticket to see this match, I would have been really disappointed. Yeah, I mean, this is where contact makes so much difference. Because in 2002, I would have been disappointed by this. In, uh, in 2017, where I really don't care about a match between Amazing Red and Jody Fleisch, I was totally fine with the match being short in service of the angle, which I thought was really good. And I know people hated the angle at the time because, you know, I think the pact they had with ROH was, I'm going to go to ROH, I'm not going to see fuck finishes. If a match looks good on paper, I'm actually going to get to see the match. I understand all that. Um, but now, with that context removed, just watching it as a show, um, a wrestling show like that I'd watch any wrestling show as... I thought that was a good angle. I thought, you know, I liked that this show was different, that they... That they were decided they were going to book big angles on this show going forward. And this was big because it was, you know, a new member of Special K. It showed that they were heels that didn't care about anything. You know, Red was injured anyway, so it wasn't like he was going to have the great match. Um, and and then, you know, it led to, and then it led to the angle, which uh, comes after, which I guess I'll just explain it now. Okay, um, go ahead. Yeah, so they're, they're beating down... Um, you know, they're, the special case beating down Red. Jody Fleiss, like, stops them. He pulls them off. And then he starts dancing, kind of to indicate that he's with Special K as well. He's officially on board with all of it. That's when uh, the SAT, or, quiet, excuse me, Quiet Storm, and the, and the Hit Squad, they all come out. But there's too many of them. Um, you know, too many Special K, but they eventually... They eventually, JT Smith comes out with them. The babyfaces eventually take control. And that's when Slugger comes out from the crowd... And he had saved uh, J.T. Smith once before, but then he attacks him this time and takes out everyone else. So he's officially with Special K now. So finally, after months and months and months of buildup, uh, we still don't understand why it was so many months, but he's officially with Special K. And, you know, I get, you know, Gabe on commentary during this is sort of like echoing, I guess, whatever criticism he got on the message board. Like, oh, I can't believe this match is over already. Uh, ROH should never do anything like this again. Now, in kayfabe terms, what did ROH do? But um, that's another question. <laughs> uh, the, and the whole thing is, I can't believe it's over already. Well, based on um, you know, you know, if it, even like based on what was happening in the match before Special K interfered, um, the Red was about to hit the infrared, so it would have been over quickly even without the interference. Yeah. So, so some of that doesn't make that much sense. But the angle itself, like, I didn't mind that it took away from this match because I didn't care about the match that much at this point because. You know, like, it's just like, I could see why it's a dream match for 2002, but, you know, having watched Amazing Red for the first few months of the, you know, for the first year of ROH, it's not like he comes off as that great anymore, and Jody Fleisch, you know, didn't come off that great in the uh, little bit he'd been in ROH, so this it's not the dream match to me now that it would have been then. So I thought that, the ang- you know, in service of the angle, I thought it was worth it. And, you know, maybe we, you could argue that, like, the, the crowd, you know, the reaction to it shows that it wasn't. But I would argue the crowd kept coming back, and Special K was a huge part of the promotion for a couple of years after this. So maybe it was worth it. Yeah, this is does feel like a show where there is a lot more, like, you, you know, the in-ring promo segments and the interference, and there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of chess pieces being moved on this show for future shows in a real big, obvious way. I, I can see why people wouldn't like that, and I think it probably 
it probably helps to make it me and you, at least me, more accepting of this match, knowing that Red was hurt, and like maybe not everyone live knew that. And so, you know, you can forgive looking back all these years, like, well, yeah, he's hurt. You know, they he, he wanted to go home early. And I, I, I like Special K, so I, I forgive this segment. Well, not forgive this segment, but like... um. I'm just trying to put my thoughts together here. I feel like Slugga, like the Slugga thing is so stupid. And it, the payoff of like, it, it's weird that JT Smith just randomly showed up at another ring of honor show. Like, I can't believe he's Philadelphia's J- favorite son. That's what Gabe says. And I can't believe <laughs> that JT Smith like this in a weird way. JT Smith gets a payoff here. Like they planted a seed with JT Smith where Slugga helped them out at, an old, at a past ring of honor show and then turns on him here. Like there's a two show JT Smith ring of honor story arc. Sure and I also will note, I mean, the segment is just this big beat down where, you know, all these teams come in, you know, like you said, Hit Squad and and Quite, Quite all the, Divine Storm, and Divine SAT. the SAT and all that, and it's just to build up the huge biggest scramble ever. Gabe keeps hyping up for show after show now for the first year anniversary show that will be coming up in two shows, and it, where it's going to be basically like Special K against the world. But the thing I the thing that made this thing up for me though was Jody Fleisch doing the world's worst dancing you have ever seen in your entire life. I that redeemed a, any any problems I might have had with the segment, which I really didn't. I was kind of middle of the road on it, but like I'll always remember Jody Fleisch being all horrible at like just making like vague arm movements, and that's his dancing. <laughs> that's what I would but, have done. So I can forgive uh, him. I'm going to be interested in seeing what you think of this match because I don't know if my, I'm, I want to see where where my thoughts line up. But our next match is the semi main event. It's the ROH title match. Xavier defending against Paul London. Xavier defeats Paul London via pinball in 17 minutes, 5 seconds, after he hits the X-breaker, neckbreaker. Matt, what did you think of uh, Paul London's first ever title shot here? Okay, well, let's just try to go through it a little bit um, chronologically so I can kind of build up to the uh, the thoughts. I guess. Okay. Well, first of all, you start out with an Xavier program. He calls Loki a Muda wannabe, calls Jay Briscoe the retarded Briscoe, and says AJ and AJ Styles stands for absolutely a jackass. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if he wrote all that stuff himself. Probably, right? Um, eh, I don't know. His mic cuts out a couple times, not on purpose, I don't think, and the crowd loves that. Um, there's a lot of like chants like during the match where you know crowds like moved to New Jersey, like the New York crowd, and the New York Jer- the New Jersey fans are like, we don't want him, and Gabe actually points it out. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it's cute. I, I, You know, and like, for whatever you want to say, uh, Xavier is over as a heel. Uh, he might not be over as a champion, but he is over as a heel. Um, London starts off early with a standing moonsault for two, um, and there's like, the crowd is really into London. Like, they root for him, like, you really don't hear crowds rooting for guys in 2002 ROH. Like, you know, like there's a Let's Go London chant, which obviously is super common in indie wrestling going forward, but you really don't hear much of that kind of chant in ROH in 2002, right? Like the Let's Go whoever, right? Like yeah, the- yeah you, you don't hear many chants. It's, it's more of just a, a cheering vibe still back then. So, yeah, I was going to point out, like you said, like the, uh, the We Don't Want Them chant, stuff like that. There was just more chants in this match 
than like noticeably more than almost any match you see in Ring of Honor at this point. Yeah, and but the Let's Go London chant in particular shows me that he is over at a different level than other baby faces because it's organic. You know, it's not based on like a, a tradition of that kind of chant because there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. So I think that that proves something. So Xavier is stalling early. Um, looks like he's gonna go do a tombstone, but he does this cool like pancake thing where he drops London face first. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, this is when Gabe starts calling the crowd unruly, but I I, met, I noted like it, it just doesn't come across that way to me. It seems like they're booing the heels. Um, so they must be referring to stuff that was edited off. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so so Xavier's like working over London. It's fairly methodical. It's nothing special. But it is, you know, building. So you see uh, Xavier working with repeated body slams. So he's sort of working on London's back. He does a bow and arrow. Um, and, he, you know, he does his whole, like, jumping knees thing. But then London comes back with his own knees, which the crowd likes. But Xavier cuts him off. Uh, Xavier does this cool, like, neck breaker over the top rope, which I thought was cool. Like, it's, you know, like, he, like, he, he, he like, flips over the top rope into a neck breaker on London, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, Xavier does some really cool moves. He always has. It's just putting them together that's kind of the problem. And the stuff in between the cool moves. Um, so Xavier goes for a 450, but London, uh, you know, kind of grabs at his legs to stop him from going up. But for some reason, he keeps trying to go up. Like, if you were trying to climb up and someone kept grabbing at your legs, you wouldn't just, like, kick him, like, get a little kick down and keep climbing up, right? You'd probably get back down and beat him up some more. So that didn't really make a lot of sense. But London eventually goes for like a superplex on the floor, but Xavier drops him face first onto the turnbuckle, and then London crotches Xavier on the top rope um, and starts to mount a comeback, and the crowd's getting really into it. Um, London goes for a shooting star press, but, uh, but Xavier rolls out of the ring, so London does the shooting star press onto the floor, and... I thought it was a great spot. Like, he doesn't hit it completely flush, but he does hit him. It's not like he misses him. So it's like, to me, it makes, it works. Because it's like he, you know, he, so it's like a last minute, you know, move. And he gets him good enough. He just doesn't get him all the way. Um, so then he goes for uh, the shooting star press in the ring. But Xavier moves and goes for a quick roll up for two. And the crowd is really into the near falls here. Um, he hits a face plant. Um, London does for another big near fall. It causes the crowd to chant, that was three. Then London, um, he uh, oh, he plays possum, right? Uh, and then Xavier goes to like to work on him, but he hits a surprise DDT, and Xavier gets his foot on the ropes. And this this spot is cool because Paul Turner counts the three, but notice like he his hand drops, but he notices the uh, the foot on the ropes. And and but the time so the timekeeper rings the bell because he hears the three count, and the ref has got to be like, no, 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 it wasn't a three. So the crowd's chanting bullshit at that, but like in a good way. Because um, it means they're into the match. Xavier, do, Xavier does a cobra cut, clutch suplex on the neck, and then a neck breaker for three. I thought it was quite good. Like I, I thought, you know, there was a methodical point, some dumb stuff by Xavier, but the crowd was really into it. It felt like, you know, a dramatic title match, which is like probably the first ROH title match since Xavier won it that felt that way. One major uh, criticism I have of it is that at the end, when uh, when Xavier does the um, does the cobra clutch suplex and he's and uh, Gabe goes oh, it's, that targets the neck. Uh, Xavier's been working on the neck all match, and it's like this is the first I've heard of Xavier working on the neck. It looked to me like he was working on the back, and then he kind of does this neck thing. So either I missed it or the or the, it wasn't clear and the announcers didn't point it out. But as far as like London did a great job getting the crowd into it. The crowd was really into the near falls. 
and again, that's not normal in these matches, um, I think London's on a different level as far as getting crowd sympathy, and I think it made this a good match. Um, people might be surprised because people have listened. I don't think either of us have been super high on Xavier, but I've been probably a bit down, more down on him than you. I really like this match, and I think this is easily Xavier's best match in Ring of Honor. By a mile. This, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, I think one thing that makes it special is you were talking about the crowd reaction. I think this might have been the first match in Ring of Honor history where the crowd clearly really wanted one guy to lose and really wanted the other guy to win. It wasn't just we're cheering because we like good matches and we like these wrestlers. It was we really want to see a certain result tonight. And, you know, and to add to that, because I'm sure like they would have liked AJ to win in the last match. They would have liked Jay Briscoe to win. But this is the first time that they wanted a guy to win and thought it was possible. So they like reacted like, he had, like they had hope that this result they wanted would happen. And that great near fall at the end you mentioned where um, Paul Turner counts three but then catches the rope right as he's counting three. When I looked at the other side of the ring that was the furthest away, some fans like jumped out of their seats. They thought for a second that Paul London had won. And if you watch this match at the end, there are near falls where the fans are for Paul London, where the fans are jumping out of their seats and like grinning that sheepish grin of like, I can't believe how into like stupid fake pro wrestling I am. Like there are people that are really caught up in this. They really want Paul London to win. You know, I feel like if, if he had actually had won, the roof probably would have come off the place, but that alone, the crowd really does a lot to help this match for me because I feel like this was a very, this is one of the better crowd reactions a match in Ring of Honor has gotten all year. And again, there have been great crowd reactions, but they've been more just the appreciative, we're really into this good professional wrestling match, not this, I'm actually caught up in wanting to see something happen specific. I want, I want Paul London to win. I want Xavier to lose. And they're really on Xavier here. It's funny to note, like it's almost like Xavier made a Christmas wish a few days prior to get more of a reaction because it's like night and day where a lot of his matches he gets mild booze and and some a lot of apathy. Here they really hate him from that pre-match promo on. They are they're coming with as you mentioned inventive chance. They just they really dislike Xavier. And I think that spurs him on to be a little bit more expressive. It's funny, like, even Gabe is leaning into the um, reputation Xavier has now. Because this is the first time he's talking about, at one point, he goes, like, the fans hate him. Like, the boys hate him. The sheet writers hate him, he says. So clearly, Gabe reading The Observer, where every month, you know, Dave has started to keep going on and on about how Xavier doesn't fit in. You know, he's not world title level. Because even for the review of this show, Dave has to make a note going, Xavier, who nobody takes seriously, is champ. <laughs> so, so like it's almost like without hearing Gabe's post-recorded commentary, like Dave's playing right into his ha- hands of like, yeah, the sheet writers don't like Xavier. But I like the whole match. Well, let's go on. I was going to say, this match is the first time where it's like there's like Xavier pays off. Where it's like they have this guy that everyone hates, and so it adds emotion to the show, which is, has not been the case yet. That is, exa- that is exactly right. Like that's what kind of the way I was playing where it's like all the investment they've made or, and that we've made is watching all of these matches. Like this is the first time where I feel like I got something back for that investment. Yeah. And I like the whole match. I thought even the stuff that was more mid tempo at the start and more basic, like 
I, I compared and contrasted this to the SAT match where I feel like this was way more engaging. I feel like Paul London, maybe it's just these two matches, but maybe it's just Paul London where he, I noticed this in his match against American Dragon, Brian Danielson at uh, Night of the Butcher and this. He's really good in these two matches at taking a beating, selling like slumped over like he's just dead. But he picks like just the right times of he'll come back and hit two or three moves and then allow himself to be, like, beaten down again for a while. Like, he knows how to break it up so it never gets monotonous, and he always seems in the fight, but you still feel like he's taking the worst of it. He's, he's really good at that, it seems like to me. Um, I just, I think Paul Lennon is one of the most compelling guys to watch get beaten down. I thought Xavier did focus on the neck a little more than you did. I, I feel like Gabe might have mentioned it once earlier, like, oh, he's working on the neck, but I also feel like it might be a thing where I think some of Xavier's regular offense just naturally has guys landing on their neck or taking bumps that you can say, oh, kind of works the neck, which, so I don't know how much of it was a conscious decision and how much of it was just Gabe knowing that the finish of the match was the X breaker. So he was going to play that up, especially right at the end, like you said, felt kind of abrupt. But I also thought the end was great. As you mentioned, there's the great three count that, fools people and then they recreate the uh the brett piper wrestlemania 8 finish where instead of a sleeper um xavier does the camel clutch hold and then paul lennon kicks off the cobra clutch xavier, you mean no cobra clutch not camel clutch Which, that would yeah, be a, and that would a lot be harder kind of, to reverse by kicking off yeah and that would have been kind of like the brett austin uh finish from survivor series 96 because that was the million dollar dream also yeah and he kicks off the ropes, Xavier kicks out, but Xavier still holds on to the clutch, drops him right in the head with a suplex, then the X-breaker. So I thought that was a really good sequence, and it was satisfying enough that even though the hated heel won clean, I think that and the three count being so close, it didn't make you feel like you got ripped off or, or that disappointed. Now, I love that they actually had Xavier win clean, because they haven't really been doing that either. You know, There's always been some sort of prophecy shenanigans, and there were none in this match. And this match, like, I feel like if you don't watch every 2002 Ring of Honor show like a couple crazy people, you probably think this is like a high good. But I feel like if you watch every show and see how special the crowd reaction is and notice how different it is from all the other Xavier matches in terms of reaction and that kind of stuff, I feel like it t raises an extra level. Like, I think this was a very good match. I would agree. I would agree. Very good. I wouldn't, yeah. quite, I wouldn't quite go great, although I thought the ending was great, but I thought it was a very good match. Yeah, and, and, I, and I feel this is, again, almost like the Colt Cabana-CM Punk match. While this doesn't have callbacks, it, it, it rewards you for watching every show. It It's something that's it's more fun knowing Xavier, knowing Paul London's rise. All of that plays into how this match feels. And, yeah, very good. I was surprised how much I liked this match. I, I just, easily Xavier's best match of the year. And Paul London, you know, his last two shows of the year, the great match with Danielson and now the very good match like this, like that's a really nice one-two punch to end the show year on because before that, he was putting in a lot of good individual performances, but the only really good match he had was unscripted, I would say. And then he has to perform, now the two London, the two Danielson matches and Xavier, like that's a nice way to end the second half of the year. Yeah, and gonna, a lot of momentum going into the first half of 03, which we'll see is a 
possibly the peak of Paul London's career in terms of in-ring performances. Yeah, like disappointedly, like that is probably true. Like that's sad. Like this year, one of the things that's made me do is it's made me realize how um, it's made me more disappointed that Paul London's career wasn't bigger. Because I really have gained even more of an appreciation from Paul London revisiting him this year. And it's sad that he never, for a variety of reasons, didn't take off. Yeah. Oh, and bad, there's bad, one... ti- bad timing being the biggest one. Yeah, definitely bad timing. Like, I know there was the all oh, he smiled at Vince McMahon when he shouldn't have segment, but yeah, that was like, all. But that was all. Like that was already after. Like he was misused. I would say. Yeah, he would be doing much better in today's world going through the NXT pipeline. But there's also one other spot that I want to mention. That I thought was great, which is. Um, at one point, uh, I th- think you might mention this. I forget. Um, a seems like an hour ago now, but a prone Xavier pulls London into the turnbuckles behind him, like kind of does like the old Tully move where he pulls the guy into the buckles, and London catches himself with his hand. He blocks his head from going into the buckles by putting his hand out, but Xavier's back is to him, and he's sitting on the mat, so he doesn't see that. So London hits the buckles to make a sound, and then he starts selling like he got hurt, like playing possum, and then he waits for Xavier to get up, and he hits that leg sweep DDT, and I thought, that's such a great way to get that huge near fall, because the leg sweep DDT is how he's won a couple matches out of nowhere in Ring of Honor this year. So I felt like that was like the perfect way to get to that huge near fall. Yeah, like, I agree. I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in this match. Um, I just thought there was the, the early part of the match, and I think Xavier in general, there's just like a couple of missing pieces to him that made it not fully excellent, but it was pretty close. Yeah. I, I I don't know if we'll ever see a Xavier match this good again. I, I hope we do, because, there's I mean... One, there's one that I have fond memories of, but I will not say what it is. Okay, well, that's a, that's a nice payoff for me to keep doing this podcast. Which, Actually, now that you mention it, I have three that I, that I well, have fond memories whoa. of. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's going to be a theme for 2003. We are going to find Matt's fabled three Xavier matches. We will see how they measure up, but... That's right. Big reactions, even at the end when Xavier is um, leaving the ring. Fans are really like getting in his face, giving middle fingers, like very aggressive middle fingers to him. So this was a big success. And next we go to Gary Michael Capetta backstage with Special K. Yayo wants to pull off Capetta's wig, which seems weird because Capetta has a massive bald spot. And in fact, Capetta then points out, if I had a wig, don't you, like, why would my hair look like this? He's like talking to them. He's, he's like, he's like, this is my own hair. And then he finally snaps. He goes, if I had a wig, it wouldn't look like that. Yeah. Like, and then um, Dixie puts his hat on Gary. Hydro sticks glow sticks in his hair for a second. Um, basically, the whole point is Capetta wants to do a promo with Special K, but he just gives up because they're being too wacky and won't let him. They're like weird jump cups, jump cuts during the promo. Like I don't know what the hell's going on, but it's I don't know. I don't know if Capetta had like a Gene Okerlund put that cigarette out style meltdown. Maybe they had to edit it out or something. The, I, I I would love to believe that's what happened. But eventually, Slugger kicked the cameraman out. Yeah, Special K keeps goofing off. Slugger tells the cameraman they have to leave. The cameraman and Slugger we follow them out where they run into the Hit Squad. Where the Hit Squad want 
to get to the dressing room. Slugger actually repeat, reveals his name. He says he's Slugger for the first time, special security for Special K. He says they can't get backstage without a VIP pass. Can he, can Mos- he explain why he stood in the crowd for months being serious? <laughs> Any yeah. reason? I mean, at least, we're go- at least this is going somewhere. Yeah. I still don't think it's good, but at least it's, go- it's now finally moving in a, in a direction. Literally, opposed- literally like what? Eight, seven, eight shows of it, Slugger doing this in the crowd. Yeah, the exact same thing. And now, finally, in like this one month, this one show, they do the JT Snow thing and this, and like he talks, he gives out his name. Like they basically, they could have spread out these little drops of stuff for the last four months and had, instead of having him doing the same thing for like ever. But anyway, Mafia it gets real mad that he can't get backstage. But Matt comes up, calms him down and says, like, we'll get your VIP pass and walks away. Next, we have Steve Carino coming out before the main event. He sits down on a chair in the center of the ring. He's wearing oh. he's wearing gear like he's he's dressed to wrestle. Yes, he gets a mic. He says, you can't have a main event without Steve Carino. The crowd chants who booked this shit. They also chant. Yes, you can. Back at Carino. And <laughs> That's I was a like, good. Chance. I was like, did Obama watch this DVD? And that gave him. <laughs> But then I'm like, no, 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 I can't do the, um, I can't do the, uh, do the, uh, uh, Back to the Future thing where I reappropriate, uh, famous things started by people of color, because obviously si se puede, Cesar Chavez, and ascribe it to a white man, Steve Carino in this case, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but it was the thought, I still that, think it, 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 it was a thought that went through my head. Again, between the airplanesmen and this, and, you know, the other thing you pointed out earlier, like, this show is, um, like this secret most influential wrestling show of all time. There's like, you almost expect to see Biff Tannen with the sports almanac in the background of the crowd or something like, Hmm. That's right. But, uh, yeah, the crowd's getting on back to back to the future references in very little time. Good job us. (laughs) That's, that's one of the big criticisms we've been getting. The the notes from the, from the higher ups tell us, Way more back to the future references in 2003. Because a DeLorean is what takes you through the years. <laughs> that should be our logo is like us sitting in a DeLorean <laughs> and like like the car about to like land on Gabe's head or something accidentally. Unless like being in shocked and horror and like trying to steer it or something. Well, who, I, who's, who's going to draw it for us? I don't know, fans. Deep, deep vein thrombo- thrombozos. We call, we are get- a call to action. You will get a special like shout out if you do that, but uh, going back, um, Steve replies to the chant of "Who booked the shit?" To like he goes, "We already have your money," and eventually Homicide comes out. He starts to brawl with Carino, but Carino has the fork, uses it, allows him to gain control. I, I don't know if I was wrong about him having the fork before. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, now I'm getting confused, but I know definitely he had the fork for this segment. No, I think Homicide actually had the fork early on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I completely screwed up that segment. I misread it. Well, I did but, not yeah. correct you, so we screwed it up. Nah, it's, you don't have to take the bullet for me, man. Um, I'd take a bullet for you any day, man. Oh, I still love you. But uh, we have, uh, yeah, so Carino turns the tables now with the fork. That's what allows him to win this brawl. And then one by one, the other members of the upcoming main event, the four-way, come down. And they kind of sell it like they don't know what's going on in the ring. Like, they, they, they kind of only react to it as they're walking out, especially right, like, Loki. Yeah, Loki, like, they, like 
I remember like when because like they had his music playing and they do the whole like prelude part of the music before he actually comes to the curtain. And I'm like, he's really just standing there while uh, his best friend is getting pile driven like seven times while he's bleeding from the head from a fork stabbing. Like what a dick. But, yeah, and, and when Key does come out, like Corino then chooses to stop beating down Homicide. So I, I do they do kind of play it like they don't want Key to know, although Key obviously seems to know something is fishy. But yeah, like you like Matt just said, Corino pile drives Homicide a bunch, Homicide's all busted up. And um the three other members of this match come down, and then Corino talks to Rob Feinstein comes to ringside and talks to him and Feinstein talks to the referee and tells him to put Carino in the match. And so now Carino is now in our main event, which is a number one contenders trophy match. Brian Danielson versus Loki versus Samoa Joe versus Steve Carino replacing homicide. And it went to a 45 minute draw. By the way, weird incentive structure, right? Guy comes out and, um, and, uh, and uh, stabs the guy with a fork, beats him up, uh, not, not invited, and then the, uh, the the owner, without really thinking about it too hard, is just like, uh, put him in the match. Yeah, it, I was I was thinking that too. Like, it's weird for a company that's always stressing how they're all about the rules and honor, and that they're not like as so lax and loosey goosey as like the WWE. It's weird that Steve Carino hijacks the show twice because he wasn't supposed to be in that Christopher Daniels segment. They stressed that he hijacks the show here. He attacks one of the people in the main event and gets rewarded with his spot. Like that doesn't seem like a promotion. That's all about rules and honor. What you should do that. You just get rewarded for that. Yeah. It's like, or at least there should be some like agonizing over the decision instead of just being like, put him in the match. No, I mean, obviously uh, Rob Feinstein is not known as being the best actor. So maybe, I don't know, maybe they should have gone about it a different way because that's not a good way to to get that over. So this match I felt like was one of the most disappointing Ring of Honor matches of the year. There is so much talent in this match. I mean, you look at that. Even if Steve Carino's not quite on the in-ring level as the other three guys, he still brings a lot of things to the table. Obviously, Danielson, Key, Joe, I mean, those guys are Ring of Honor. And I compared this a lot to in my mind when I was watching this and when I was thinking about it after to the crowning a champion main event, which of course was the four man 60 minute Ironman match with Daniels key, um, William, Doug Williams and Spanky. And I feel like this match was always going to have a hard act to follow because having another big star studded four way in the same year was always going to invite comparisons to that match. But this match just feels lesser in every way. It's it's shorter. It's um, it's for a t- number one contender's title instead of a title. Also, another thing to note, I guess, is this is yet another show where the number one contender's trophy match main events the title match to show again how Xavier is treated like a bit of a second-class citizen. Um. I feel like this match didn't have any story to it. It felt like four talented guys filling time and there were fun segments and there were not fun segments, but that crying a champion match had so much story to it. And I also felt like it was, had more action packed into it in some respects. Like I felt like there was more inventive, like 
obviously pre-thought sequences where here in the last five minutes of this match, it's as if they turned on a, a switch and all four guys got in the ring for the first time and started to do a lot more multi-man, everyone running in and doing stuff. And that felt like they had planned out the last five minutes and the other 40 were improv but it made the match feel really weird where it was like they were in second gear almost the whole way. And that was like, Oh, five minutes are left. Like, let's go do our, our big finish. And it wasn't even that big a finish. It was fun. Um, there are fun moments to this match. It's funny. Like Gabe talks about all the history in this match that these guys have between each other, all the different threads connecting them of story. And Gabe sells this as, you know, this is why you have to watch all the ring of honor shows because to get all this story, but yet they don't play a ton of story into this match. Um, like a lot of it's just, Oh, these guys wrestled each other before. Some of my favorite parts were Danielson and key getting to wrestle each other again for the first time since the round Robin challenge in ring of honor. But it's not like there's some big story. It's just, Oh, that's a cool matchup. And they're getting to do this again. There's um, one segment where, Loki and Samoa Joe near the end of the match take off their wrist tape and really go to town for a second. And that is a direct reference to the Glory by Honor match, which I, I did like that callback. But mostly it's just guys coming in. I also felt like Steve Carino was a little out of place. Uh, he His wrestling was a bit more basic, and Gabe keeps selling this as, oh, this is like four strong style masters. And well, yes, Carino does have the credibility of being a major player in zero one at this point, he never has the gravita or like just the, the authority. Like you don't feel that Steve Carino is this ass kicker on the level of a low key or Samoa Joe, but uh, this is a match. There's nothing wrong with it, but it almost goes back to what I said about the SAT match, which is a match this long needs to be better than just okay. Especially with this much talent in the main event. Yeah. It's funny. Like in some ways I I completely agree with everything you say, like in terms of like the specifics. But my overall assessment of it is a little bit different in the sense that I wasn't that disappointed in it. And as a matter of fact, I remember the match, like from watching it when I first watched it, whenever that was, 2005, whatever. And I remember liking it less than I liked it this time. Like I remember, what, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I remember at one point when we were talking about the crowning of champions match, I think on the podcast, you were like, and there'll be a four-man later in the year that won't be nearly, like you were even then alluding to, I could tell you didn't have fond memories of this match. Yeah, so I think, you know, like we talked about earlier, expectations matter. And I completely agree with you that there wasn't a lot of like thought put into the booking of the match. It was a lot of just like, sequences of guys like like i thought the early part of the match was cool you know you had Loki and uh, and danielson doing the mat the wrestling on the mat and it was really good and and joe came in and would do his strikes and it was cool but then the match just kept going at that same pace for 45 minutes and it was like yeah it's just like there's it's just a bunch of just like aimless stuff right there like there wasn't any direction that the match was going in but I liked the uh, the actual execution of what they were doing, like the actual moves and wrestling that they were doing, enough that I didn't find the match to be bad. It wasn't very good. It was, you know, maybe too long for what they were doing, but I thought, like, the actual wrestling execution, like the moves, uh, how they did them, and the way the intensity with which they executed them was good. That's not enough for a 45-minute match to make it... Uh, worth that amount of time and I agree with you like 
that uh, you know that the, the real highlights action wise didn't come until the very end. I really can't think of it. I mean, I wrote down a lot of spots here, but nothing really stands out as being a big cool spot until the very very end of the match. And obviously, that's not what you want in a long match like that. Um, there was a little bit of a storyline, like Dragon got beat down for a very long time, and I thought he he showed some like you know some being valiant near the end. Um, but I, I, in general, I uh, I don't know. I, I I thought it was it was entertaining still for what it was. Like when I started watching this match, I was like, I'm going to watch it in parts. But I ended up watching it all at once. It wasn't as boring and heatless as I remembered it being. And so I guess just based on those expectations, I liked it more than you. Even though I think all of your crit- criticisms are correct, it should have been better. Uh, they should have put more thought into it. You know, it almost made me wonder if this Carino edition was like a last-minute thing. I don't think it was, because they put so much booking effort into Carino in general on the show, but you'd think they would have then booked out the match a little bit more. The the other thing that I'll note is, you know, Loki, since the Joe match, or really since he lost the title, because that Joe match was like a mid-card match, he's really been de-emphasized a lot. Yeah. And this was his first, like, you know, main event, big feature, long match he's had in months. And you, he just he, there was something missing with him. He wasn't the same low key. Like I don't know if he had been, you know, was already kind of injured, or maybe he was on the rocks with the promotion. I'm not sure. Obviously, he's n- you know never really back in that top spot ever again. Um, and it's a few years before he's even like in a top heel spot. So I, I don't know. There's just he just didn't feel like the same low key. And you know, you almost felt like Dragon and Samoa Joe in particular are kind of taking the mantle from him as far as being like the standout stars. And actually with Joe, I, I don't want to you know, maybe I'm saying too much all at once, mud- muddying my point, but Joe, um, you know, when he won the title a few months later, it sort of came as a surprise. Like, you know, Joe is the guy, and then the fact that he was a long-term champion, but watching him here, it's like, oh yeah, he's definitely like a top guy. He's definitely. He, he's, he performs like one, he's over like one. Yeah, he... He instantly just fits in, like. Uh, but I, I was thinking a lot about that low key thing too, and I don't know if you agree with this. I don't even know if I agree with this, but part of me is thinking maybe low key is a guy that needs to be like pushed as the the the, the king of a promotion because it feels like whenever he's just another top guy and not like in the first six months of Ring of Honor, they pushed him clearly as the number one face, the clear best guy. It feels like he loses something, and I feel like maybe because Loki carries himself, his character is like such a badass that if he's not the pushed as like the clear best center of everything, maybe it just something about that works against him if he doesn't get that treatment. It's possible. I mean, I don't want to ascribe like motive to him, like he works less hard or anything, because I don't think that's fair. Um, but you know, I do, I do think the the, the portrayal of him as not being the clear top guy has hurt him in terms of the reaction that he gets. Um, the one thing that I also notice is with Loki not being the clear top guy, there really isn't one in ROH, you know, and that's, you know, may or may not be a problem. I think, you know, London sort of by default steps in and fills the role because he's the most over baby face. Um, but he's, you know, yet to be given a main event also. He's finally given a title match, and it does, he does a great job in it. But, you know, what would he have, what, how would this match have been different if he was in that role instead of, you know, instead of a low-key or, you know, one of the other guys, or even instead of Dragon? You know, how much more heat would the match have? It's interesting to note. Um, 
so like those are the things that stood out to me about this match. I I agree with you about like the problems with it, but I still probably enjoyed it more than you did. I thought it was above like a bit above average, but again for 45 minutes and these four guys, I guess that's why I'm I feel so disappointed obviously. I just think but I just I, think that Dragon and Joe and Loki, they're just so good. Like their 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 execution, their moves, you know, their intensity is just so good that it's almost impossible them for them not to have a good match. And I would say this was good. It was just too long and too aimless. One part I want to point out that I forgot to mention too is Right from the opening entrances, um, Danielson comes out like talking shit to Joe and yelling at him. And they have some really good kind of antagonistic exchanges at the start. And it's funny because those two, like in this match where Gabe's emphasizing all the connections these wrestlers have with each other, to me, like the most heated exchanges were against the two guys that have no real connections at this point. And as far as I can tell, like the only reason they came out like, like that is because they're working each other on the next show. Right. But and I guess, I, and I guess that there's like that they wrestle like that's that strong style quote unquote to the point where they have a natural rivalry that they just want to see who's better. Like a, you can, you can make, you can make a, you can invent a reason. Cause it's not like they, they came out like attacking each other. They came out like, no, nose to nose like like when danielson came out he stood on the top rope that joe was already standing on and they basically just had a stare down yeah and you can tell he's saying something but like there's intensity it's not like pure hatred but there's definitely like let's get into it yeah you know let's mix this up meanwhile loki you know i thought like he did not show enough intensity toward carino knowing what you know because if he didn't know when he came out he certainly knew by the time that carino took his best friend out of the match so i uh, you'd think that loki would like come in pissed but like gabe tries to play it off like oh maybe loki doesn't want to get involved let carino and homicide settle it but that doesn't really ring true to me in terms of and what the character would do the match ends with a uh, carino shaking um everyone shakes everyone's hand but carino shakes loki's hand and they tease it out a little bit but loki shakes it but again it just it doesn't feel like this huge, like you could, like you said, you could have played it up more where he's just foaming at the mouth to go after Creo. And then after this draw, because Loki believes so much in honor, like you could have really made it a bigger deal of like, Oh, he, he really doesn't want to shake this guy's hand, but he has to, but he just saw what he did. But yeah, they don't, they don't play it up enough. Yeah. I will say early on when the handshakes are going on, Carino goes, he stabbed me first, and I was yeah. like, "Well, he—I mean, he has a point." Now, you know, in in the real world, it's not okay to stab somebody in retaliation for a stabbing that they did to you um, two months earlier. But yeah. In the, but in the wrestling world, I think that's probably like you know is is re- reasonable uh, morality. <laughs> You also have to love the fort continuity in the first year of Ring of Honor. Like our first introduction to Ring of Honor was, well, it was a rubber chicken, but then he stabbed a. Uh, um, Loke, when he was the hardcore ref with the ghetto fork, that feud ended up having a fork come into play at the end. He stabs Carino with the fork. Carino comes back and gets revenge with the fork now. Like, the fork has been a through line of Homicide's career in 2002. It's a, it's a ring of forks. <laughs> and I guess the one last thing I'll say about this match is... Even though I don't like him as much as the wrestlers in this match, maybe this match missed Christopher Daniels. Because I think Christopher Daniels has shown in his career he has a real talent for managing um, 
multi-man matches and kind of policing them and making sure their story, because I think he put a lot of the story into the, uh, the three-way at Era of Honor Begins. I think he was like the centerpiece of the crowning a champion match. And it would have been interesting to see in an alternate world if Daniels was in this match instead of Carino, maybe like what he could have done. Maybe he, he would have enforced more story onto these guys. I agree with that. I, I think that's exactly right. So, um, oh yeah, and Gabe during this match also references Joe versus Key and says it was the hardest hitting match to ever take place in a professional wrestling ring. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it was it was a hard hitting match. I mean, guys have had like orbital bones broken in matches. I would say those were probably harder, but I mean, point taken. And he they also get an, another little jab at the SAT that you alluded to earlier, where he on uh, one of the two guys, I forget if it was Gentry or Gabe, said, uh, unlike the SAT, all four of these guys are in tip top condition. So ouch. But next we have a backstage segment. The Hit Squad return. They say they have their VIP pass now. And it's all the wrestlers Special K beat down earlier tonight. They storm the locker room and chase Special K out. Slugger tells them they don't know what they've gotten themselves into. And that's the end of that segment. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess not much to say there. Yeah. Then we, uh, in another black and white promo segment, and maybe this is when we can get your theory about why these next two segments were in black and white. The Carnage Crew cut a promo. It was a solid promo, but it's very similar to the promos on the last show. It's about they hate their lives. They like hurting people. They don't care if they win or lose. That's their only pleasures causing people pain. They build their weapon and they build up their weapons match against the hit squad on the next show. Uh, yep, I, I like the Carnage Crew promos. I think they do a good job of getting across the characters. The characters are clear. I think, you know, I like the, the cadence of it where Loke, like, just, like, he'll, like, make a point and, like, DeVito will just kind of mumble something behind him. I think these promos are so much better than the Hit Squad promos. I, I really enjoy them. They do come off, like, a little bit crazy and dangerous. Like, especially DeVito, just the way, like, he'll smile while they're, like, talking this shit they're very you know aggressive in a good way and they're also matt as always they're wearing that very controversial jinxed clothing (laughs) so uh, (laughs) (laughs) um and then we get low-key cutting a promo also in black and white and this is a promo i know you complained to me earlier before the show like this is another classic not good um, low-key promo he says his dopey catchphrases he's very serious and trying hard to be low-key and he has three goals for ring of honor for his himself in ring of honor in 2003 one is to hurt xavier two is to destroy the prophecy and three is to regain the ring of honor title uh i guess one out of three ain't bad yeah i mean like it's just like the low like I, it's been a while since i heard a low-key promo and you know like last time you saw him he was talking to homicide he sounded almost like a human like in, in like in all-star extravaganza and he's like yeah i'd want to you know work with otani and tanaka so you know you think maybe he's starting to come out of his shell but then you see him and he's walking down the hallway and just goes you have just witnessed four men. and it's just like can you just be a <laughs> can you just be a person like it's just it's 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 just it's so obnoxiously like dull and boring to hear him talking like that i mean i guess you know i i mean he he's he eventually gets a little better over the years but this this early low key where he's just like i am robot fighter man <laughs> it, it it's just it just wears thin like i don't know if there's many wrestlers where the gulf between the image they portray in the ring and the image they portray on the mic 
like even though he's trying to accomplish the same thing in both spots, like he totally succeeds in the ring and he totally fails on the mic. Like you, you, you take him seriously as like, this is a really tough, legitimate, hard hitting, incredible athlete. What a, like a special wrestler. And then you listen to his promos and you go, this is a 12 year old boy trying way too hard. Like it's such a difference between those two. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And then we go to a back to color for our Gary Michael Capetta Carino interview. Carino reveals the first member of his group, and he says it's someone shocking, and it's simply Luscious, his girlfriend. So I know they just broke up, but still, how shocking is it that your girlfriend is the first member of your group? That would be like if I was five years old and I was like, Mom, I mean, I was like, guys, I'm starting a club. The first member, it's going to be shocking. It's my mom. <laughs> like, mom, welcome to the group. And, uh, <laughs> like, yes, it's the first person you'd think of. And there's also a bit, a nice bit of, even though it's kind of a wet fart of a, uh, I hate that phrase, I don't know why I said it, but of a reveal. Like, you, there secretly, is, you secretly love that phrase. <laughs> the wet fartometer, yeah. Um, the, 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 it's, it's a nice bit of symmetry with the first group in Ring of Honor because the Prophecy's first announced joining member was simply Luscious. So there's a nice bit of like callback there. Luscious briefly talks about how much she loves Carino and will do anything for him. And I wrote, this is some of the worst acting the company has seen all year, including from Luscious, which is weird because they were actually dating at this point. Like, <laughs> like she's never been l- l- less convincing and she's talking about something that should be absolutely true but um you make a point yeah maybe that boat maybe that was like an early sign that the relationship wasn't going to last but carino says he'll announce the next member of the pro of the group at the next roh show and then he starts making out with simply luscious the camera pants back to Gary Michael Capetta, who has this hilarious, confused, like, pursed lip look on his face. Then the camera just silently pants back to Carino and Luscious making out. And that's how Ring of Honor 2002 ends. That, that's the end. Well, now multiple DVDs have ended with those two making out. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just how they end DVDs. Matt, that was Final Battle 2002. Um, what did you think of the show overall? Uh, you know, I, you know, I know this show had a bad rap over the years. I thought it was, you know, pretty damn good. I, you know, the first hour was great. The title match was really good. The scramble match was really good. I liked, you know, like all the controversial angles. You know, there's a lot of, I guess, you know, the big complaint at the time was a lot of overbooking. You know, a draw finish at the end, fuck finishes, like you know, too much, you know, nonsense. I liked all the nonsense. I liked the special K angle. I liked the Carino stuff. I thought, you know, as long as they didn't do it every month, it felt different. It felt like a change of pace. It felt like the beginning of a new era, which is what you want at the end of the year going into a new year. The main event was, you know, a little bit disappointing. The tag title match was a little bit disappointing. But overall, I thought it was a good show. And and it actually, um, you know, the whole year, one of the themes was, when is ROH going to make that leap from this, like, kind of, you know, talking about what they are to actually becoming what they are? And I feel like now I can safely say that it was all-star extravaganza. You know, you had, um, the month before that was Glory by Honor, and it was, you know, way too many matches and a lot of bullshit. And then all-star extravaganza was pretty tight, it was pretty good. And then every show since then I've liked. And, you know, there have been multiple good matches. You're not, not a lot of squashes, not way too many uh, backstage goofiness. Um, 
it really became a, like a good wrestling promotion. And I remember it, at the end of the Glory by Honor uh, episode, I said, when is this actually going to become a good wrestling promotion? And so I think it, it has become one. And so I'm happy to report that. Um, I, I think one thing I learned re-watching 2002 Ring of Honor is I do agree that All-Star Extravaganza was kind of when Ring of Honor started putting together more consistent shows. But I think one thing I learned was I kept looking for that one moment where Ring of Honor would become the company I really started to love in 2004. And looking back, I think that was a very unrealistic way to look at it, where everything changes at different paces. Like, it doesn't change all at once. There's different elements that come into place at different times on different shows. And sometimes it's even a case of two steps forward, one step back. But... I feel like there's, you know, it's a more gradual, organic evolution than I than I was expecting from from my memories. And also, I think one thing you do see when you rewatch 2002, you see a guy, Gabe Sapolsky, learn not to just throw a hundred ideas at the wall, and still maybe throw too many, but those first few shows were so overbooked with segments and matches and brief little things that were like 30 seconds. And just, he was, it was a guy that was so excited. He was getting to book his own wrestling promotion. It was like, well, I could try this and I could try that. And I could try this. And they never, those shows, they were so many segments. They ran quick. You never got bored, but you never really got deeply satisfied. And it was just exhausting at some points. And I do feel like 2002, one thing that has definitely completely changed is he's learned not to let things breathe a little more. I would agree with that. But I, I also think like some of the stuff I'm, should have been obvious. Like the fact that from early on, like ROH was really promoting this concept that they were, you know, a wrestling promotion, you know, all that stuff. And yet there was so much bullshit up and down the shows. It's amazing to me how actually long it took for them to get to the point where there like there was just a bunch of wrestling matches and like matches on the early part of the show actually got some time to be good not just the matches at the end and as for final battle 2002 it's weird because in a lot of ways the show far surpassed my memories i think there's a lot of stuff like the punk cabana match the london xavier match to a lesser degree the scramble are all better than i remembered and it's a very if not, none of those matches are match of the year contenders or anything, but it's a satisfying watch. But it's hard for me to um, completely love this show when two of the biggest matches were so disappointing to me in certain ways. And also the SAT match, while not being horrible, like I would count the disappointing matches as Fleisch and Red and the main event. And then SAT um prophecy was a long match that wasn't particularly good but it, it, a better show than i remembered it also feels in a way like again like i said before it's a show about setting the chess pieces up for the next year and some people aren't gonna like that like that's something gabe's always talked about where one of his challenges doing ring of honor was how do you make an episodic program where every show also has to be like worthy of buying on its own like every show has to be pay-per-view or dvd buying quality but you also need shows that set things up and you can see some people probably won't accept a show that has a bit more setup to stuff yep that's fair yeah and just to be for the record i didn't completely love the show either i just thought it was solidly a pretty good show whereas it i think the reputation was that it was kind of a bad show yeah it, it is better than the reputation 
And now we get to do a fun little extra thing, which is we're going to do our first annual ever 2002 Honor Awards or Honors. We're just going to, and we have five awards. And then I found some few interesting things from the Observer Awards that year. So this is just a fun way to cap off the year. And I know we had a listener a long time ago say like, are you going to do some awards at the end of the year to sum up things so I can kind of know where you rank certain things? And so I think those things are fun and it's easy to do. So here we are. And our first award will be the biggest rewatch surprise, good or bad. Now, Matt, do you want to lead off? What? And, oh, and I want to note for these awards, I told Matt to pick a winner and two runners up with the caveat. You can, we can talk about other people we considered, whatever. And the runners up don't even have to be ranked, but it's basically just winner. The next two people, two runners up. All right. So, so you, want, you want me to start with my runners up for the biggest um, surprise? Sure. Sure. Go ahead. Give All me right. the runners up. All right. So my two runners up. So my first one is the existence of Matt Thompson. That's one of them. <laughs> um, just very surprised that he existed and I didn't remember it. And it is, he is something else. And the other thing just is very relevant to what we were just talking about, how much sports entertainment there was in ROH just in general. Um, The fact that – just the fact that there was so much like overbooking and backstage nonsense and corny stuff, so antithetical to the mission statement of the company. Um, Do you want to give your runners-up or should I just go right to my – I'll do my runners-up. My runners-up was – Number three, Spanky was not as good or as vital as I remembered. I remember the first show or two, we were like, wow, Spanky's one of the most polished guys here other than the top three. And then um, he was never bad, but he was never, other than maybe the crowning a champion match was probably his best performance. And even in that match, I would describe him as the fourth best guy in the ring on that night. And it's like he was never bad, but he was never... I feel like when you watch, they're giving him a lot of promo time and pushing him hard. And we all remember, I think a lot of us remember Spanky. We have memories of early Ring of Honor. But really, it feels like Paul London is everything they wanted Spanky to be in a lot of ways, at least in a lot of ways. And he, um, the company doesn't feel like it really gets consistent, like you were saying, until right around when Spanky leaves. So it's it's kind of a weird it's it's not how I remembered him. He didn't do bad, but his era in this first run isn't how I remembered it. Um, number two is the same as you actually. It's the sheer number of backstage segments uh, and the company being far closer to the WWE than modern indie wrestling is today. Even though they even though people remember in the old days they thought of Ring of Honor as this very dry company. Like, Ring of Honor doesn't do angles, doesn't do sports entertainment. Like, that's what detractors of Ring of Honor sometimes would say. Like, people that wanted that stuff. Ring of Honor, like, of 2002, is far closer to WWE than indie wrestling today. Like, it's far more colorful and far more, like, I was surprised how much more it was. I agree. All right. So, so do you want to go to your winner? Yes, yeah, so my winner was... I was very surprised by, which again, what I was just talking about, the quality of late-year shows compared to the early-year shows. Because, like, Era of Honor Begins, Round Robin Challenge, all the way up to Road to the Title, those are well-remembered shows. Road to the Title, I think, was, you know, kind of considered the best of that lot. You know, in the early ones, they've always been sort of known as one-match shows, but they were worse, I'd say, than I expected just because of some of the angles and some of the, how you know, some matches that were considered good I thought were less good. And the end of the year shows, and I'm talking about All Star Extravaganza, Scramble Madness, um, Night of the Butcher, and Final Battle. Were all like, you know, other than All Star Extravaganza, um, all the other three were all much better than I remembered. And 
I just think like they were just better overall. And I was very surprised by that. Yeah, going to your point before, like at some point, like uh, All Star Extravaganza, Ring of Honor just became way more watchable show to show. And it's almost like people just remember the great matches from the first shows, but they don't, what people have forgotten or maybe just never realized is if you watch all these shows, the second half of the year is far more watchable show to show than the first half, even if it doesn't have as many like historical great matches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my th- number one was your number three, which is Matt Thompson. Mm-hmm. Matt Thompson was literally like, obviously he's not as, as historically significant, but if we're talking about surprises, it was almost like if someone told me that time travelers had gone back and inserted Matt Thompson into a show that he originally wasn't a part of and like had altered the space time continuum, like Marty McFly and Doc Brown, third Back to the Future reference, um, <laughs> I would I, I would believe it because it's just I can't believe I don't remember this. Like, I can't believe I don't... It's such a crazy one-night performance. Like I said, I'm sure that I just never watched it at the time. I must have just skipped over it and not thought about it. That's that's the only explanation. Like, Matt Thompson should be an urban legend. And so, I also just had a few, like, things I considered but didn't put in, which was, similar to you, Scramble Madness being a surprisingly good show, Amazing Red being a little rougher than remembered, Brian Danielson holding up amazingly well. Like, I, I knew he was good, but I didn't realize he was... Like, his matches would hold up this well. The rise and fall of Michael Shane being, like, better than I remembered. And then immediately after Unscripted being the Michael Shane I remembered. And the Xavier London reaction. So, worst thing of the year. I decided to do worst thing of the year because a lot of the worst moments of this year weren't wrestling matches. Now, this category can include matches, but it doesn't have to. Just whatever you thought was the worst things. I guess I'll start this time with my runners-up. Three for me was Donnie B. It was just Donnie B as a person, Donnie B as an announcer, Donnie B as a name, as a concept. I thought he was, I still think he's one of the worst commentators I've ever heard in my life. I softened a little bit doing the show with you because the fun we had, like pointing out things he said, like I think kind of softened me a little, but I still think he's horrible. Number two, I just titled Misogyny Aplenty. There was man-on-woman violence on every show. Women's wrestling was treated like a complete joke. The first six months of the year, it was treated like like worse than Jerry Lawler treated pudding matches. They were just like drooling over it. It was just crazy for a company that's talking about honor and respect and taking wrestling seriously, how sleazy they were about this stuff. Yeah, and my runners-up are... Almost exactly the same as yours, just a slightly different phrasing. Um, for three, I, I had just commentary in general, because it wasn't just Donnie B. Eric Gargiulo, who I think in general is well-regarded for his CZW work, I thought was terrible in ROH. Um, beyond you know the Christopher Street Connection stuff, just obnoxiously over-hyping everything. Steve Carino, also really bad. Um, Gabe was a step up, but also had a lot of faults. So I thought, in general, commentary was one of the worst things. Um, number two, I put the consistent man-on-woman violence, because it was it never stopped. Um, I think our number ones are probably the same. Maybe, yeah, and maybe I, another difference of phrasing, I don't know, but you go ahead. <laughs> I think if people have listened to the show since the beginning, you they, they'll probably be able to guess what we both agree on, which is the opening in-ring segment of Era of Honor begins just the insane homophobia from Eric Gargiulo and Steve Carino on that segment, and the fact that that opened Ring of Honor, really. Like, 
Yep, that's mine. Um, yeah, just the I just the, I mean, just go. You, I mean, if you want to plug anything, listen to the beginning of our first show, and you can hear exactly what we thought of this. It's insane yeah. that this is that's how ROH started. It's just insane. And in a way, it's also it probably could fit in our sh- biggest surprises because I don't think we realized how bad it was. Oh, I I actually did remember See, that. It was one, I, it was I, one I of the re- things that I was like excited to start the show talking about because I remembered it and I wanted to bury it so badly. Yeah, and that was one of the first things like people like mentioned our show for were like, hey, whoa, you guys really went in on this. And yeah, it's go back and listen if you haven't listened. We uh, the show's a little rougher in the first episode, especially me, but because I'm still learning how to host. But yeah, we definitely have a good discussion about that. I don't um, agree I don't agree with how hard you are on yourself there, but yeah, you should, you should, you should, if you're going to, if you like the show at all, definitely listen to that segment. And a few other things I considered would be the C.W. Anderson worked shoot with the little Jew, Jew line. The, I wrote something that you, basically what you did, which was all commentary except Gorman and Gentry. Cause I feel like Gentry has been inoffensive on the two shows and Gorman was the only one that didn't like annoy me at any time. You know he's lovable in a way. So and as and I've said, I genuinely like Eric Gorman. I think yeah, I think he's a good commentator. And then I also had um Takao Amori. Did, did I say Eric Gorman? Because I, I I think you did, but Jeff I, Gorman. I, I like him. Jeff Gorman. Eric Gargiulo is the one that's eh. yeah. Takao Amori versus Sonny Siaki was just supposed to be Amori versus Michael Modest that night, but they had to shift the card around at unscripted. Just Amori leading Siaki through an incredibly basic. Like, I could care less style wrestling match. Um, Red killing guys with the infrared, injuring at least two people, if not more. Sumi Sakai versus Simply Luscious. Horrible match from Road to the Title. Lexus Lurie versus the Christopher Street Connection. That entire feud. Primarily the match with Alice in Danger. I mean, so, a bunch of stuff to choose, but luckily it was all mostly short stuff. Except, I guess, commentary. But next we have show of the year. Matt, do you want to give your runners up for show of the year? Yes. Um, my number three on best event was Scramble Madness. Uh, big surprise. I would never have expected that to be in the top three, but I really enjoyed it uh, from top to bottom. Liked the main event a lot more than I expected. Loved the Scramble match. Um, uh, it was, you know, so, you know, the Matt Thompson surprise. Enjoyed, even enjoyed the Xavier squash. So I thought that was a really good show. Uh, my number two two runner-up was Honor Invades Boston. I, uh, it was way too many matches, but the double main event was the best of, you know, the entire year for ROH. Just two excellent matches in a row, which you didn't see too often in early ROH. So those are my runners-up. I had, this was one of the categories I had the hardest trouble. Uh, like the four shows I wanted to pick all stuck out to me, but I had a hard time ordering them, but I'll pick three with Scramble Madness for me as well. I just, the su- most surprising show of the year, there's not, maybe some people would consider the scramble match the best, but um, I don't think there's one match that's quite on that match of the year level, but it's just a card with a lot of very good stuff, and it's just a fun watch. Um, Road to the title, I would put it too. I feel like there's a lot of short nothing and that big tag segment that goes nowhere, but then there's also a lot of... Um, It's a show that has that one standout match with Key and Red, and then on the top of the card, you have a few matches that are pretty good as well. And it feels a card that felt different than everything else this year in the sense that um, it was kind of like the the Ring of Honor doing the Super Tournament. So those are my three and two. And my number one, as you might expect, is All-Star Extravaganza. Um, 
had one of the best matches of the year, um, which I'll you know talk about soon. But it also had a, a, a fun, you know, if not dynamic main event. It had a, a good six-man match. Gauntlet series was good. Um, had a pretty uh, decent scramble match. Um, uh, so I thought, in general, this was a you know there was some bad stuff like you had mentioned some of the uh, the Alice in Danger, Alexis Larie stuff, but and but I also had Xavier versus um, Xavier versus Jay Briscoe. I thought was a pretty good match. So just in general, a good show top to bottom with a hot crowd that I think is still well remembered. And my number one actually is Honor Invades Boston, and I had All Star Extravaganza is my number four. I debated where to put all four of these shows. I could I could make a different list today probably, but All Star Extravaganza for me was it was good. But I, I, when I sat down, I had a hard time thinking of what I look for in a show. In the sense of, I feel like Ring of Honor this year it was a lot of you either had shows with the one great match or you had the show with the not great match. But it was more consistent in quality. And I feel like Honor Invades Boston is the one show that gets closest to... It's not a great undercard, but you know there's more... Donovan Morgan and Danielson have an okay match. Red and Quiet Storm have a fun, quick sprint. It was the first spot fest scramble type thing that I didn't hate. It, um, it's, it's not a terrible undercard. It's still back when Gabe was throwing a million things at the wall, but it's watchable. And then it has that bam, bam, two great matches at the end where you get the Briscoes match and then you get key AJ Styles the second time. And I feel like there's, I'm a sucker for the big double main event like that where both of them hit. And I feel like this was the only time of the year where, where you got two great matches and then you also got an undercard that wasn't like, actively not good it was watchable i yeah that makes sense i would agree with that so yeah so that's our first uh that's i think say that's our first surprise that we that we pick yeah. different we pick different matches um different shows i mean for the top show of the year and next we should go to match of the year i'll go to three and two my three is mark briscoe versus jay briscoe from honor invades boston I love the de- it's so much detail work in this match, the little things, but it still has big spots. I love this match. Um, uh, I know our Alan, our friend, he uh, recently rewatched this match as part of a Briscoe's rewatch project, and I think he said something to the effect of, "There's probably never been a better match between two people this young," and I'm inclined to bo- to agree. Um, number two would be American Dragon versus Low Key from. Round Robin Challenge, which is a great match. I mean, some people might say it's one of the ten greatest matches they've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll get to it. Um, my number three is uh, is the main event of Crowning a Champion: Christopher Daniels versus Low Key versus Spanky versus Doug Williams, sixty uh, minute Iron Man match. I just really love the little intricacies of the booking. I'm a sucker for, like, you know convoluted rules and i thought they did this as well as you could do it i felt like you said earlier daniels really held the match together they had some cool mid-match spots um you know i i felt for the guys in the in the heat because i know it was unbearably hot there but it made the match all the more impressive i thought doug williams looked awesome as he literally did every single time he showed up in roh um but low-key was the star of the match and i thought this was one of his finest hours, um, you know, and great drama, great crowd reactions. I just thought, awesome match. My number two was AJ Styles versus American Dragon from All-Star Extravaganza. Um, 
I just I love the the mat work early. I love the intensity later, like the some of the um, just some of the stiff shots. I, I really like the finish. Um, I thought it was one of the coolest you know builds to a Styles Clash that I've seen. Just felt like an epic struggle, and um, it really it was like a Dragon's first match back after he was in Europe. And I thought you really saw how excuse me not Europe. Um, Japan, Japan, New Japan, yeah, and and you really saw how much he grew there, and it showed in the, his uh, matches that he had later in the year. I just loved everything about it. And my match of the year is American Dragon versus Loki versus Christopher Daniels from the Era of Honor Begins. And I will say, I think there are some matches that are better bell to bell than this, but it is a great match, and it has a lot of sentimental value for me, which counts. Um, it's the first great Ring of Honor match I've. I ever saw it's because it's the first show I ever saw and it's just I feel like it, it it's an inf- a secretly influential match I feel like it set the tone for a lot of three-way matches like obviously because Daniels was involved in it but there's a lot of this in the TNA classic three ways there's like outright spots lifted from this there it, it's a, I think it's influential it was a three-way that w- broke the mold in terms of like two guys switching off and then one guy resting and i love that they also had the faith to put those guys in the main event and i just i love the symbolism also that these three guys carried the year so there's just so many extra things apart from the match that i love about this match nice and my number one is uh, american dragon versus low key from the round robin challenge i think calling this a great match is a huge insult to the match honestly um, I think it's a work of art. I, uh, I, I, I have seen few matches between guys this, you know, relatively inexperienced that have this much nuance, this much intensity. Um, are, it's so novel. You don't see matches like this in the U.S. Uh, other than between these guys that reach this level. Um, you know, the, the mat work they do early is different than other mat work you see, but it works. Um, the crowd is just builds and builds and builds with it, and to to this incredible crescendo. Just the t- the way that the, the the beats of the match, the timing of the high spots, the way the match finishes is just so perfect. I just can't imagine how they did such a good job with this. And it's the only match in ROH of this year that I would consider like an all time great match, like an all time great match. And I still think it is. And the fact that I can watch this in 2017 and still feel the same way I, I did when I first saw it says a lot to how well it was put together and just how talented these two are. The, the two two most talented guys, uh, I'd say, on the indies at that time, and this was them working to their absolute peak ability. And I will say that, um, uh, questions about his health aside, if Brian Danielson does return to independent wrestling next year and someone doesn't book a low-key Brian Danielson match while they still can, like, I will be angry. Like, somebody has to do that. Just one more time. It might not even be as good. I'm sure it'll, no matter if it's good or not, it'll be completely different. But I feel like that's something that needs one more match. Like, there needs to be, a, like, a bookend to that career. I agree. And we'll go next to wrestler of the year. I have some other like honorable mention matches, but I think they'll go nicely with this point I'll make coming up. But um, wrestler of the year, Matt, what was your three and two? All right. Well, I'll just say that three was super hard for me. Um, and it was down. So my three was down to three. Um, so can I say the three that I was thinking of? for Go, three? go ahead. Yeah. All right. So I, it was between Christopher Daniels, Paul London, 
and AJ Styles. You know, Daniels we talked about was sort of the glue that kind of held the company together. He kind of outperformed what you might think for him. He had a lot of really good matches early. You know, his personal, his you know, his character work really carried a lot of things for the company. Um, London, you know, he he was brought in without much fanfare. He very quickly showed that he was among the most talented guys. Had some great matches in the second half of the year. You know, really got the crowd on his side. And AJ, you know, we know who AJ Styles is. I ended up going with AJ as for my number three. Um, I just think he had the most really good matches. He had that match against uh, Dragon that I found to be unbelievably good. Had a great match against Loki at Honor Invades Boston, a really great match. And another really good one at uh, Night of Appreciation. I just thought that, in general, his work just stood out a lot to me. Um, but it was a tough call. Very close call. Um, and my second runner-up, and believe it or not, uh, even though every, you know, I think everybody listening to this knows my biases, I'm genuinely surprised um, that he is not number one, but I put Loki at number two. Uh, he had an incredible run of matches at the beginning of the year. Um, I really thought I was going to end up putting him number one. But uh, you know, after that first few months, I think that he fell off a little bit, um, just a little bit, but it was enough to keep him at number two. But he, he was just incredible. I mean, he really uh, just had a remarkable string of great matches, including, like I said, one of my favorite matches of all time. So I, uh, I can't say enough good things about how, how, like, how good Loki was at the, in 2002. My three is Brian Danielson, who just the sheer number of great matches is just staggering that he put forth this year. Um, Christopher Daniels is number two. I feel like he was the glue in two of the most important matches the company had this year, the Era of Honor Begins three-way and the Crowning of Champion four-way. I think he was called on to do a, a lot of heavy lifting in terms of being the first-ever stable leader, the guy who cut a lot of promos that they obviously realized he was the best at promos he also had some good matches as well i wouldn't put him quite on the level of some of the other guys in my top three or four but i think he was just a really important part of the first year of ring of honor okay uh well my number one is uh, american dragon um based on what i said previously i don't think that's surprising um i didn't i swear i did not expect this um but just looking through the matches that i like the most and that's what roh is about right the matches more than anything mm-hmm. The only one of my favorite matches that he wasn't involved in was that four-way at crowning a champion. But you go all the way to the beginning. The three-way Aravana begins. The match against Loki, that was my match of the year. Um, the, uh, then he had the, uh, the match against AJ Styles at All-Star Extravaganza, which is one of my favorite matches of the year right there. Then he had the match against Doug Williams, the, uh, the 30-minute Iron Man match that I liked a lot more than I remembered. Just I thought it was a, a legit, like, pretty great match and then the match against paul london at night of the butcher i thought it was just a phenomenal match and you know then you know he had some like appearances in gauntlets and things like that which you know like that other match against paul london that was you know better than i remembered just and his execution was just so good he seemed so good beyond his years and just the sheer number of great matches and how much i liked those matches um he had to be my number one I, i just i just can't imagine not not picking him it always hurts not to put him as my number, to put him where I did. But I felt like the other two guys, I'm like my winner is number one is low key, and I just feel like they felt more important to the company. Even though Danielson, 
obviously I put him three, contributed a lot. I, I feel like you're absolutely right. Key after I would say glory by honor really loses steam. And you could argue if um Well he only he was only it, on two shows after Glory by Honor, to be fair. But even even that, he's not on all the shows. But you could argue even that he lost steam after losing it on scripted because it wasn't that the glory by honor match was so good. It wasn't even like treated like a main event. It was in the middle of the card and it just happened to be, a, and it wasn't had a lot of deep story to it. It just happened to be a great match, but low key. So much of the hype for the first six months of ring of honor was the commentators telling you over and over again, low key had a match of the year candidate on every show in a different style. The, the whole company was built around him at first. And I think low key more than anybody was the selling point of ring of honor for the first until, unscripted until unscripted to me Loki's at the center of every reason you want to buy ring of honor tapes almost and going to how important all three of these guys were i'm just gonna go you i'm gonna name some matches you just named but go through my top three matches again and some other matches i jotted down that i really loved this year you know the american dragon low-key daniels three-way american dragon low-key briscoe versus briscoe key versus red key versus styles London versus Shane, Key versus Joe, Styles versus Danielson, Scramble Madness, Scramble, London versus Danielson, Crying and Champion, and Danielson versus Daniels. Danielson or Loki are probably in over two thirds of my favorite matches this year in Ring of Honor. Like without those two guys, I don't know where they go in 2002. Yeah, they they, they carried the load so much. Right, and that, that's why my so my. Match of the, you know, my wrestler of the year pick was sort of I, I used did like the most outstanding wrestler. It wasn't like the Luthez Award. I just picked based on just quality of matches, um, and that's what led me to Danielson over Loki. But it was close. Yeah, it's actually open to interpretation. My only honorable mention would be uh, Paul London because I feel like Paul London was so refreshing. Like I think I feel like him becoming the first homegrown Ring of Honor star is still exciting to watch. He just didn't maybe have as the resume of great matches as the other guys did. Although near the end of the year, he starts, you know, he has a very good match with Xavier just now, and he has the Danielson matches, but he still deserves a mention. So that's our awards. I think 2003's awards are going to be more interesting. I think there's a greater diversity. There's yes. Not, there's not as much of a canon of great matches in 2003, but there are definitely great matches, so it'll be very I, interesting to see. I think there's more of a uh, less of a canon for 2003 in general, which is going to make it a really interesting year to cover. I feel like in some ways it's – I know you said it's the year you rewatch a lot of stuff from, but I feel for most people it's kind of like the transition year that people don't pay attention to. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of stuff to uncover in 2003. Yeah, there are a lot of good shows in 2003. I think overall the shows are better. And although the show's getting a little long, I thought we'd do one more fun thing, which was to see how Ring of Honor fared in the 2002 Wrestling Observer Awards. Now, the first thing I'll mention here is, unlike the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, where it is is only voted on by people that Dave sends ballots to that he deems worthy of ballots, the Observer Hall uh, yearly awards are open to anyone who's a subscriber of the Observer. So that's just to give you an idea of what kind of base of people you're getting. It's a much wider base, but still obviously influenced by reading the Observer. But I'll go through just the awards. I'm going to give off the winner and whoever the Ring of Honor people were in that category. For a lot of the categories, Ring of Honor people finished 
on, and we can just talk if we find anything really interesting. So, most outstanding, not the Luthes Award, like Matt just described, Luthes has to count for the drawing ability and the in-ring work. The most outstanding award is what Dave gives just to what do you think is the best wrestler in the ring. Kurt Angle won in 2002. Low-key finished 10th. So, Low-key was the one guy from Ring of Honor to get an award, I mean, uh, a ranking there. And he did a really good job. Um, Feud of the year. Ken Shamrock versus Tito Ortiz won, because they mixed MMA with wrestling. And it's funny that to think that Ken Shamrock was um, refereeing the second Ring of Honor show, and then went on to like this giant thing to help UFC get back on its feet. Huh. Like, it's, like it's a pretty crazy in front of you know 400 people in the Murphy Rec Center and then TORTs in a UFC. But AJ Styles versus Jerry Lynn finished seventh, which they had one match in Ring of Honor. Low Key versus Christopher Dan- Daniels finished thirteenth. So that was the Ring of Honor feud people voted for. Um, tag team of the year. Now, Matt, this is the one that gets weird for me. <laughs> um, Eddie Guerrero and Chavo Guerrero won that year. And Otani and Tanaka finished fourth. Christopher Daniels and Donovan Morgan finished 11th. Well, I guess they were the champions, so they were like the default pick for ROH like super fans, I guess. I looked up on KJF to see if they wrestled anywhere else. I couldn't find it. They barely wrestled in Ring of Honor together. But they wrestled, let me think. Okay, so they wrestled those couple of matches at the tournament unscripted. They were part of a six-man match at... uh, at All-Star Extravaganza, and then they had the one match against the SAT, right, at, uh, yeah. at Final Battle, and that's literally all the matches they had. And let's note that the Observer Awards, another weird wrinkle of the Observer Awards, is that Dave Dave's year for voting, because he likes to get the awards out early in the year, earlier in the year, is he always says, like, it's from December of last year to, like, November or early December. So it wouldn't have even counted the Final Battle match. So really, people are voting Daniels and Morgan on three matches, one of them which was a six-man tag. So basically, they're just voting for ROH. Yeah, exactly. Which, again, makes you realize some of these awards aren't... You know, people always aren't always discerning not to be snooty. What was, um, their, what was their rank? 11. Oh, all right. Well, you know. So, I mean, in tag teams, you know, the only people they... Fin- they only listed 12 for this award. The only people they finished ahead of was Chris Jericho and Christian. Okay. Which, which well, seems wrong, but... Chris Yarko and Christian were better tag team. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, most improved in 2002 was Brock Lesnar. Low-key finished 5th. AJ Styles finished 7th. Doug Williams finished 11th. And it, Amazing Red finished 14th. And, and a kind of an interesting thing, Eddie Guerrero finished 12th for most improved <laughs> in 2002. I assume, I guess he improved by not being addicted to drugs anymore. Yeah, he improved his health. Yeah, it just is interesting to see, like, Eddie Guerrero, number 12, most improved. I mean, but, I guess it was the first time where it seemed like he could be a WWE, like, main eventer, so maybe he improved that aspect of his game, but yes, it, that's very silly. Hmm. So, yeah, th- those awards are also sometimes, I feel more like, I think some people just vote for who came on my radar this year, like, oh, I wasn't, I heard about Loki last year, but now I see him in TNA, so now he's more improved because I can see him. Like, that's an improvement in my life. <laughs> so, best on interviews. Kurt Angle won that award. Christopher Daniels f- finished 10th. So Seems high, but he was pretty good. He finished right below Phil Baroni. 
And like, you want weird. The thing I love about these lists is the weird rankings where, like, best on interviews, number eight, Hulk Hogan, number nine, Phil Baroni, number 10, Christopher Daniels. It's like, wow, we're really jumping over the map, all over the map on this one. Um, Best technical wrestler, Kurt Angle wins for this award, too. American Dragon finishes seventh. Doug Williams is right behind him in eighth. And Low Key finishes 11th. So, yeah, it's interesting because Dragon's very close to starting a run where he's like wins that award like every single year for like what? How many years? Eight years? Something like yeah. that? Yeah, something crazy like that. To the point where the award is now named after him. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, he he. This is like the last time he'll probably finish. Well, I'm not sure. We'll see. But the days of him finishing seventh will be over very soon. Yeah. But the Bruzy Bro- the Bruiser Brody Memorial Award for Bru- Best Brawl. Bruzy Broder. I'm like losing it as I'm getting deep into this podcast, but not too much longer to go. Some of the, some of these are pretty fun though. Like, um, the Bruiser Brody Memorial Award for Best Brawler, Yoshihiro Takayama won, and Low Key finished 14th. So Low Key, the 11th best technical wrestler, the 14th best brawler. So the, I'm surprised that they didn't put the Hit Squad in there. Yeah, they did not make it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Best, I'm not. I'm not I'm joking about being surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Best flying wrestler, Rey Mysterio won. Amazing Red finished third. AJ Styles finished fifth. Paul London finished eighth. Jody Fleisch finished seventh, and Low Key finished eleventh. So I'll note this is shows you. I think this is a good testament to how um well rounded and unique Low Key was. He finished eleventh on Best Technical, fourteenth on Best Brawler. And 11th on best flying. Yeah, but I will say, I mean, because like Red, that's like Red's third. That's one of the highest in ROH guys he's ranked for anything. And, you know, we watched Red all year. He wasn't that good. No. And he also finished high for um, most improved. Well, not high, but he was in the in the awards. Yep. And it's like, ooh, I, I wonder what he was in 2001 then, like, <laughs> if he's that improved. But most underrated, Christopher Daniels finishes third. Doug Williams finishes ninth. And Loki finishes 13th. So a lot of Christopher Daniels love in 2002. I think that's a pretty, actually, good position for Daniels on that. I think that's probably pretty true. Oh, and American Dragon finished 17th, and Booker T won that year. That was a Booker T year. Um, Promotion of the year. Now, here's a big one. The top two promotions of the year, this is when they mixed MMA and wrestling, were Pride and the UFC. If you take them out, the wrestling promotion of the year was Ring of Honor. It finished above WWE, CMML, CMLL, All Japan, Pro Wrestling Noah, Toriyaman, New Japan, Ohio Valley Wrestling, TNA, and Zero One. It beat all of them. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a weird one. Um, best I, don't, weekly I, don't, I don't think I agree. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Um, best weekly TV show, SmackDown won. Ring of Honor finished 10th, which is another just... It was a local show, mostly of clips and squash smashes, that only aired in Philadelphia. This is only voted by people that just wanted to vote for Ring of Honor and everything. Right, exactly. Although I will say the only TV show it beat was WWE Confidential, which it's, finished 11th. 2002 is so interesting in the way people like react to WWE because obviously everyone hated like the way Raw was with like the Katie Vick stuff, but it was generally consensus that SmackDown was very good for the second half of that year. So it's surprising that like SmackDown didn't carry them over the hump. More it's it weird. Did. It's weird that like WWE and a lot of these awards, it's like 50, 50 on people that just live and breathe WWE and hate them. Uh-huh. I might put one too many W's in there, but um, 
so you get like half the awards where it's like they can win best and worst on some categories sometimes some of these years like the vocal minor sides on each side can can get it into e- like the best categories and the worst exactly but worked match of the year they actually split this away from MMA thank god Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle versus Edge and Rey Mysterio won that year American Dragon versus Low Key finished fifth and Spanky versus Loki versus Daniels versus Doug Williams finished seventh. And Loki versus American Dragon versus Christopher Daniels finished twelfth. So they said there was four matches better that year. Oh, Triple wow. H and Shawn Michaels finished third. Mm. Yeah. It, it was a very sentimental match for a lot of people at the time. Yeah. Um, best television announcer, Eric Gargiulo finished eighth. I mean, I think, I mean, that's, I guess it was probably for ROH because that's what seems to be getting the awards. But I know that he does have a pretty good rep in CZW. Right? Yeah. Like, he was not good in ROH. I'm sorry. Like, that was, like, that, those, that commentary in those two shows were bad. No. And going to a point you made earlier, like, even though I do rail on Donnie B, Steve Carino and Gargiulo were almost as bad. Yeah, for sure. And Mike Tanay won that year. Worst television announcer, Jerry Lawler won. Donnie B finished ninth. That's way too low for Donnie B. <laughs> there were not eight announcers worse than him, including he finished below Jim. Jim Ross got more votes than he did. So I know more people watch Jim Ross, but um, best wrestling show, SummerSlam won that year. Road to the title finished sixth. That was the only show, Ring of Honor show to rank. Again, Ring of Honor also it takes longer for the shows to filter out, especially back then. Best pro wrestling move, I can skip that. That's not important. Although, Doug Williams' Chaos Theory Suplex did finish sixth above the Spanish Fly, which is interesting that people like that better than the Spanish Fly, which seemed like the big move to me. Well, I guess I just like Doug Williams better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, reader's favorite wrestler. This is a weird category. It's just, what's your favorite wrestler? American Dragon finishes fifth. Kurt Angle won. Spanky finishes 13th. It's the only award he gets. Huh. Like. I don't know. So Spanky has a hardcore following. Best Booker, Paul Heyman won. Gabe Sapolsky finishes third. He finishes above, you know, like some pretty big names. Mudo, Masawa, Dutch Mantel, Chono. Well, I mean, I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad pick. I mean, ROH was noteworthy that year. Like, it did something different. And the other companies probably did the same shit they always do. So Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right there. Um, promoter of the year was Kazuyoshi Ishii, who promoted K1. Rob Feinstein finished seventh for promoter of the year, one behind Vince McMahon at number six. The big two. <laughs> and it's funny that, like, Ring of Honor almost went out of business a few months from this point, and Rob Feinstein was promoter of the year. I mean, we didn't know that at the time. Yeah, and, you but, know, it was wrestling in 2002, like, going out of business was, you know, just part of the fun. And then the final award, best gimmick, Mattitude won that year. The Christopher Street Connection made the list, Matt, number seven. So it was just crazy to see the Christopher Street Connection in the Observer Awards. They had the number seven gimmick of the year. I've heard that the portrayal of them was a little more entertaining elsewhere. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen it myself. But yeah, I've heard definitely that they were better elsewhere and they are entertaining in some ways in ring of honor, but it's interesting where so much of what they did in ring of honor this year wasn't good. And I presume that's what people voted for. Right. But 
Curry Man, Christopher Daniels gimmick finished 12th. And that's the Observer Award. So that is the year. We have done 12 episodes. We have covered every single Ring of Honor show in 2002. You can bind them together in a book after you transcribe them. We've No one needs to ever cover this year again. We've done the job. That's no right. one can improve on it. Exactly. No one can ever improve. Actually, can I add one thing? Sure. So Brian Danielson was my uh, wrestler of the year for ROH in 2002. So when I have a throw in a little Brian Danielson blurb, which was, uh, so I noticed uh, last week, uh, Danielson, he had, or Daniel Bryan, uh, he had a Twitter interaction with the uh, left-wing journalist uh, Naomi Klein about her book, uh, uh, sort of about you know the current political era, and she made an appearance on the uh, on the podcast Chapo Trap House, and after her appearance, she the host said that she asked them to give a shout out to Daniel Bryan, and to ask and they asked him basically to come on their show, and so if Daniel Bryan's going to just become going on podcasts, uh, you should come on this one. As well. Yes. I'm not saying you shouldn't go on Chapo Trap House. I'd like to hear it. I think it would be interesting. But you should come on through the years. And I know, like, go on Chapo has more of a ring to it than go on through. But go on through <laughs> sounds like something also, doesn't it? Go on through. Sounds go like on you're through. moving and you're doing something good. You know, you're moving on through things. Yeah, yeah. Go on go on through, D- and Brian. If anyone has any connections, I mean, Danielson's not going to be out of that contract for probably at least a year, but start working on him now because, like, he can reach an audience of literally maybe hundreds of people here that already like him and will buy everything he he does regardless. And also, if you you decide that you're going to come on, Daniel Bryan, um, I will consider not making you sit through a random ROH DVD from 2003 and taking notes. I'll consider it. <laughs> we should have him review like R O H a show that he's not even on. Yeah, like Scramble Cage Melee yeah. from two thousand four or something. Yeah, beating the odds. <laughs> but yes, Brian, like we love you. You're safe here. You're I did, welcome. I, I here. did that whole podcast about your ret- retrospective of your career on the Observer site. It was very well regarded. That's another plug. Um, but so you must know about that, right? Someone probably told you. Yeah. Just ask Alan. Like, Alan will tell you, like, when he's telling you about, like, what he's missed on the Hot New Japan tip, like, just ask him about that podcast. He'll give you the link. Go on through, Daniel Bryan. Go on through. Go on through to the other side Uh of not being in WWE. So, I want to thank everyone that's been with us this year. All the the D-Vein thrombozos. Thank each and every bozo from the bottom of my heart. I mean, every comment you guys have made, every download, I know your time is valuable. I've appreciated everything. It's been a lot of fun. I want to thank Matt. He's the best possible co-host I could ever have. He came up with this podcast. So not true. Um, thank you for saying it. He, he, he's like, the great thing about Matt, that and why he's like locked up with me, you guys can't have him, is... He's not afraid to agree, and he's not afraid to disagree, and I think that's a surprisingly rare, like, you get honesty from that, which is, like, it's easy to want to go with the flow on a podcast or be fake controversial, and, like, I literally don't think there's a better person to have on a show like this than Matt, and I wouldn't be doing it if he didn't ask me to be on his show and everything else, so. Well, since, since you said that about me, I will say, so Trevor is the best host because he is 
so first of all he's so passionate but also he's so thorough like he's not gonna let a stone go unturned he does all the research i do barely any uh so like the show it's this this is this is your show man like you're, you're the host of this ah. show. i'm this i'm the sidekick at best no and it's so, 50 50 and any any positive qualities the show has are thanks to you so thank you it- the show's going to end with us coming to blows. But anyway, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Cubs for starting the show off, like giving us the, the forum to start everything and get noticed and being so gracious when we moved on to uh, the Place to Be Nation. I want to thank Chad for listening to us from the very earliest period when we weren't even on his network and he already was busy with 800 podcasts that belonged to it and giving us the invite. And again, I want to thank you to everyone that's ever listened or tweeted about it or posted on a thread. And we'll be back, hopefully, as long as it's keep being fun for both of us. 2003 is going to be a real fun year. It's going to take us 20 episodes to get through that year. And thank you, everybody. You can contact me at Trevor Dame on Twitter, Matt at MayorMGF on Twitter, through the years at gmail.com. You know how to spell through T H R O H in everywhere you spell it in life. That's how you spell it. <laughs> um, we post on, I, I check messages on the plug section of the pro wrestling only message board, figure four board voices of wrestling board. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody. Peace.